Well, good morning, <clears throat> good afternoon, good evening, good day. We have an international group recognizing all the different time zones. My name is Herb and I'm an alcoholic. Welcome to our next monthly series, the spirituality series. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. We'll, we'll start talking about step five, and then I'm hoping to have a Q&A and a break. It might be the break in the Q&A or the Q&A in the break. It'll depend on how long I take in bringing us to that place, right around 11 o'clock. So if you have questions as I present, you have experiences that would augment our day today. If you have comments or even resistances and disagreements, because I'm sharing my knowledge interpretation and my experience, uh, and you may have very different take on things and somewhat a different experience. And that would be very, very enriching to all of us to hear that. So if you could make a note of your questions and or comments so that we can have that discussion at a time that won't be interruptive to the flow of my sharing of my knowledge and my experience. And then the second section will be on steps six and seven. Although they're very uh, short instructions in the big book, a paragraph each, they were life-changing. And we'll take some time to explore with you my experience and understanding of those two steps so that in fact you could incorporate those if in fact it is uh, uh, helpful to you to hear what I have as a commentary and an experience. And then the final two steps, eight and nine. The most difficult steps from my standpoint, from my experience the most difficult steps because they involve other people who are not necessarily on a spiritual path, who are not necessarily even emotionally and mentally balanced, who are not necessarily, in fact, <laughs> eager to or happy to see us. Very, very difficult, eight and nine. I think they're the most difficult and they're the only two steps that you cannot possibly do accurately and in a healthy way on your own. Every other step, I'm very confident you could navigate on your own. Not as well as with help. That's very clear to me. But uh, eight and nine, no, you couldn't even, couldn't even come close to 50% of a healthy and appropriate and effective uh, execution of those two steps on your own. Because they're all about us and we cannot be objective because we're the subject. So I'm going to put up some PowerPoints 
to guide me in my commentary. We all come with a certain burden. Nobody comes to spiritual work that isn't experiencing some suffering usually. One of my teachers is Richard Rohr, and he said 98% of the people come from suffering, 2% come from just some sense of love, but 98% of the human race come to some form of self-development and or spirituality because they're suffering as we did. Most of you are addicts of some kind. Most of you are in a 12-step program of some kind. The 12-step program to deal effectively with your unique addiction. My work is open to everybody, all human beings, 100%, addicts and non-addicts. My second book, 12 Steps to Spiritual Awakening, is subtitled Enlightenment for Everyone, because I discovered in that first edition of the big book, the preface to the first edition, right up front in the first edition, April 1939, in the very first paragraph, you talk about up front, at the end of that very first paragraph, Bill Wilson says, besides our way of living may have its advantages for all. See, he wasn't, see it in the context. He wasn't talking about alcoholics. He wasn't even talking about people with an addiction problem. He was talking about the possibility, prophetically so, because he didn't know, but he speculated. He had a tremendous intuition that this 12-step process is a process that can be adapted and adopted by all human beings for personal development, for emotional development, for spiritual conversion, for transformation and transcendence. I don't use any of those words lightly. Every one of those words was chosen very specifically because it's my experience. But this was Pathetic Herbie in 1984 when they asked me to stop drinking. A story for a different day. Alcohol was removed when I was willing to say yes. That was it. I didn't go to AA. I didn't even go to therapy. They, whoever they were, it doesn't matter, asked me to stop drinking to support my wife's recovery. April, excuse me, February 20th, 1984. February 21st, my first day of sobriety, without any request, without any prayer, without any help, without going to AA, without going to therapy, I was struck sober and I didn't know it but I haven't had a drink since. I went to AA later on, three months later. Uh, again, a story for a different day, it's not relevant. But during that journey in AA, I met a man at four years of sobriety that said, Herb, you have a lot of information, but you have very little transformation. I hope you can see that on the screen. He did it in a restaurant. You have a lot of information, but you have very little transformation. I'm four years sober. 
I haven't had a drink in four years. I'm a daily meeting guy. I call my sponsor on a daily basis. I go to step studies and, and book studies. I'm a mad dog seeker. But this man knew. And he also knew that I didn't. And he quoted Einstein. The consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. Brilliant. My mind is broken. And any resolution or idea that my mind comes up with is going to have a flaw in it. Because the mechanism is flawed. And he asked me to pray a prayer. He called it the set-aside prayer. It was based on the big book, as all of his recommendations were. But I didn't know that because I really didn't know the big book four years sober with all my activities. But he quoted it from page 58. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. And he challenged me, can you let go absolutely? And I knew it wasn't a trick question and I said, absolutely not. I've not been successful in seeing that I don't see. So I would invite you, if you're inclined to pray this out loud, you're all on mute, or to pray it silently, or to not pray it at all, but to commit for this time that we're going to be together, whether it's the three hours that I've scheduled or the four hours that I hope to have, you may need to leave at some point. But for the time that you're with me here, Commit to having as much of an open mind and an open heart as you're able to generate. And uh, add to that a willingness to have the spirit, whatever that life force is, to enter into your heart, into your mind, into your very soul, and give you the gift of a clean white board so that the spirit can write on it new information and a new experience. That's my hope and my prayer for you, that you can hold that stance, that attitude for the next three or four hours. Please join me. God, please set aside everything that I think I know about myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and you for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and especially you. I'm a big believer in questions. I've heard very, very frequently in meetings, the big book is a book of answers. And indeed, it turned out to be that way. But more especially, it's a book of questions. And Joe and Charlie were quite humorous in their approach to the history and their experience in the big book. And that was my first exposure to really appreciating the content of the big book. And they said the, the book is filled with answers. Yes, but the better part of the book is filled with questions. And you'll recognize the questions because there's a question mark at the end of the sentence. Oh my God, I love that humor. But also the insight. 
And they said, treat the question mark as a stop sign. Literally, the question mark. Stop. Ask yourself the question. This is not academic. This is not rhetorical. This is literally a question Bill wants us to ask. The authors of the big book done by group conscience want us to ask. So that then when they begin talking about their experience, their commentary, their suggestions, you'll have that question that has pried you open to listen to their commentary, suggestions, and experience. And it has something to be hung on, the flesh that will be put on the skeleton of those questions. Here you are, giving up part of your precious weekend on a Saturday to sit in front of a Zoom and listen to somebody's experience and suggestions and commentary on their own journey. And those of you who know me know that I'm very, very almost evangelical about communicating my knowledge and my experience to you so that can you too can experience the reduction in suffering that you're experiencing or will experience because that's life and be able to navigate reality with dignity and comfort. Navigate reality with dignity and comfort. Where is your life not working? Today, right now. I don't mean in your addiction, unless currently you are in your addiction, and that's why you're here, because you've been so confronted with the ineffectiveness of your journey so far. You have not been able to deal effectively with your addiction, whatever that means. How effective have you been in having the life, the quality of life, not just the quantity of life, we're not interested in cars and houses and even relationships, quite frankly. But how about your personal contentment? Your personal happiness? Your personal self-esteem? Your personal sense of competence and safety? How effective have you been? <laughs> There's a question. Do you really want to change? Oh my God, so many people are afraid of change because even though they have a thorn in their foot, it's a familiar thorn and they know how to navigate it. And if they take the thorn out, oh, how will I live? What will it be like? What will be the next thorn and where will it be? And how will I deal with it? Better the devil I know than the devil I don't. Do I really want my life to change? Well, it means that I have to trust the universe. I have to trust my teacher. I have to trust my community. I have to trust the process. And inevitably, I have to learn to trust myself. Oh, my. When we look back over our shoulder, we see how not trustworthy we are. So we are afraid, and I completely get that. What changes would I like? I didn't know that I needed to change. I didn't know what to change. And I didn't know that change was possible. And I didn't know the, the process of change. I, you've heard me say it if you've been exposed to me at all. I didn't know that I didn't know. And I couldn't see that I didn't see. 
43 years old, alcohol was removed. 48 years old, I did my first journey through the steps out of the big book. It was embarrassing. The background I have, the education that I have, to be confronted with not my delusions and my warped beliefs and my corrupt motives. That wasn't the embarrassment. The embarrassment was that I had never seen any of it despite all of my self-development and psychological and therapeutic efforts. What changes would I like? That's a question for you here today right now. And here's one that came to me after about 10 or 15 years of sobriety in my faithfulness to my daily morning meditation practice. This question came to me, what is the invitation? And today, every morning, that's how I come to conclusion in my morning meditation. What's, what's the invitation today? And specifically for you who are really tracking with me right now, you're in some form of meditation. We just prayed. We prayed the serenity prayer to open up. We prayed the set-aside prayer to open up our hearts. The spirit is present because you invited it, whether you're conscious of it, whether you know it, whether you feel it or not, you are now saturated in and inundated by the spirit. Knock and it will be open to you, right? What is the invitation that this event today is going to provide you something, some knowledge, some experience, some challenge, some confrontation? And right now you may know what you expect, but be prepared to be surprised. I have been historically wonderfully surprised. Wonderful is a broad term because sometimes it was embarrassing, but later on as I digested it, it became wonderful. Of course, we're here, most of us, because we had some form of addiction, but as you know, Unmanageability is the key. That's why there's a special red banner there. I think that's the human condition. That's, I think, why Bill was able to say prophetically, our way of living may have its advantages for all. Because all human beings are self-centered. He implies it on pages 60 to 62, where he says, Addicts are extreme examples of self-will run right. Extreme examples. Well, interpret that. If addicts are extreme examples of self-will run riot, then regular non-addicts, human beings, whatever that percentage is, are self-will run riot. See, this is the human condition. Selfishness, self-centeredness, the root of the problem. 
And this is how it manifests in us. I hope you've done this task. And if you haven't, I'm suggesting that you look at page 52 in the big book, that second paragraph. I call it the bedevilment paragraph because that word is in it. It's the best kept secret in the rooms. Understanding unmanageability. And this is the behavioral description. The behavioral description. This is what it looks like as how your feet move, how your heart moves, how your mind moves, how your thoughts move, how your feelings move. I am having trouble with personal relationships. I made it personal and I made it present tense. I, am, I can't control my emotional nature. I am a prey to misery and depression. I can't make a living in my meditation. It was revealed that I'm a deep, dark hole, a bottomless pit. There's not anything that can satisfy me in terms of material reality. I have a feeling of uselessness. I am full of fear. I am unhappy. I can't seem to be a real help to other people. And my challenge in my meditation was, what do you mean? How does that apply to me at 10 years of sobriety? I studied to be a Catholic priest in a monastery for seven years. I studied to be a psychologist in graduate school for five years. I studied and applied all of the self-help stuff of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, and now I'm in AA, and I'm sponsoring and helping a lot of people because of my knowledge and experience with the big book. What do you mean I can't seem to be a real help to other people? My whole life has been geared to preparing to help other people. And the wee small voice said, Herb, you don't really care. You don't really care about other people. 1994, you want the reputation of helping people. You actually really don't want to get your hands dirty. And I became very confronted by my narcissism. Fortunately, I was in parallel therapy at the time, and the therapist was, in fact, confirming that with information from the DSM, that Diagnostic Manual for Psychiatrists, a personality disorder that cannot be remedied through therapy or medication. But by a professional evaluation, has, in fact, been 80% reduced in terms of its impact on my daily life over these last 30 years. Because the spiritual program is a powerful program. I call it spiritual. You could call it human development. We don't need the word God. We don't need the word spirit. We don't need the word that implies anything other than a human modality. The co-partner in my presentations on emotional sobriety talks about the best in us manages the worst in us. For any of you who have any resistance to the, the terms that connote spirituality, I think you could adopt that and have a wonderful experience. The Buddhists talk about the higher self, the most conscious self dealing with the unconscious self. 
as do the psychiatrists and the psychologists. Some philosophers talk about the true self versus the false self. See, this is the, these are the words we're using to try to attempt to evaluate human development. That's all human development. I'm talking this way because steps five through nine are the final conclusion to the transformation of us. Bill says we were walking through a spiritual arch. He gives us this architectural analogy on page 47 as he introduces us to step two. He doesn't use it in step one. So we assume that, in fact, this spiritual arch is built on the foundation of step one. The foundation of step one is complete defeat on my own power. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. That's unmanageability. In addiction, when I start, I cannot stop. And when I stop, I cannot stay stopped. In either instance, addiction and or unmanageability, my mind and my body and my willpower are corrupt, innately defective. If you've done step one with me, you'll have a, a real sense of that model. And if you haven't, you might want to go to some of the work that's on YouTube to listen and watch to my unpacking of step one. But then on page 47, he said, willingness is the cornerstone. The first stone placed on the foundation that sets the direction of the entire arch. He then in step three uses the analogy again. He calls it step three, the keystone. Willingness is the choice, the decision God is. Step three is the decision to turn, to have a relationship with. He doesn't mention this architectural analogy again to step five. But look at step five is at the end of the arch. He hasn't given us any information concerning how did you build this arch? If in fact, on page 75, the promise is there at the end of step five, <clears throat> articulate that we've now built the arch and we've walked it through it to a new freedom. I'm assuming that step four is about the building blocks, resentment and fear and sex and dishonesty and secrets. And now we can walk through this arch to freedom. We're going to start with step five today. Last month and the months prior to that, I've unpacked step one, steps two and three, the first half of step four, resentment, the final piece of step four, fear and sex and dishonesty and secrets. Those are all recorded in YouTube, a similar three to four hour <clears throat> discussion with PowerPoint, which might be quite helpful for you. Downloadable for free, either through YouTube or through the retreat center 
website. But here we are now um, completing step four, preparing to do step five. Join me in this prayer that Bill gives us at the beginning of the journey of this second stage of recovery. And I'm referring to the rocket launch metaphor that he gave us in on page 25, rocketed into the fourth dimension. We got on the rocket, in the rocket, when we decided to engage in the step process. That first stage is steps one through three, a need for and a relationship with power. We're in the rocket now. It's going to take us where it takes us, and we need help for this unpacking of stage two, establishing a relationship with ourself, allowing the spirit to remove the obstacles in us to the relationship with the power that is in us. Please join me in this prayer of consent. Out loud, quietly, not at all, but if in fact you choose not to pray the prayer, which is just fine, prayer's just words. But the real heart of the matter of effective prayer is intention. What's your intention? My intention is to have the obstacles in me removed so that I can have a transparent relationship with power. I need a relationship with power. The power of God, certainly that's the way the big book is constructed. The power of a higher power, the power of spirit with a capital S, or as I said in my opening comments, a connection to my true self, a connection to my higher self, a connection to the best in me that will manage the worst in me. My intention is to be a decent human being, rehabilitated, so that I function in a society as part of enjoying the benefits of the community and contributing to the community with my special gifts. That's my invitation, and I believe it with all my heart, every one of us. Please join me. God, I offer myself to you to build with me and to do with me as you wish. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of your power, your love, and your way of life. May I do your will always. You see, with my free will, I am choosing to be in alignment with my understanding of reality, with my understanding of God's will, whatever that means to you. Alignment. That word is not in the big book, but it's the word I've chosen to represent this turning 
made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God in alignment with reality. And so we continue with the journey in this second stage of the rocket launch to remove the obstacles in us through confessing them in step five, through identifying how they manifest in our behavior from our character defects and disorders, and then to realize that I'm powerless again. Oh, the theme of every step is powerless. In step one, it's very clear, no choice. But in steps two and three, we're powerless to have an effective word and to create an effective relationship with power. We're powerless to do that. But we have a faith decision and a hope decision, a faith decision of step two, a hope decision of step three, that what we're doing is real and that it will work. And we proceed then as if the decisions and the hope that we have exercised with our free will is indeed going to be effective. That's what Bill says on page 53. God is or God isn't. What is your choice? We are confronted with the question of faith. A decision that it's so and the actions as if it's real. Even though I have no certitude, even though I have no feeling, I take the actions as if. And so we remove the obstacles in us. In step four, we look at instincts gone awry and the root cause that selfishness, self-centeredness. You can see this in the diagram. The fruit of the root are instincts gone awry, fight, flight, and freeze, translated into the emotions of anger and fear and hiding, dishonesty, translated into the behavior of resentments, feelings that are held over and over and over again, fears, unhealthy and inappropriate sex, based on the principle of self-gratification and self-centeredness rather than universal human, maybe spiritual principles. We're as sick as our secrets. This man said in step five to me, the primary purpose of step five is to be transparent, to Make sure that you talk about all of your secrets. Anything that is a source of embarrassment, anything that is a source of tension. The shadows in you shine the light into the dark corners. In setting up a step five, make an appointment with your if you're setting it up for yourself, give your, your, the person that you're going to give the step to, step five, two or three or four weeks advance notice because as the book says, we're in for a long talk, especially if this is the first 
fifth step that you've done based on your first fourth step, you've written down a lot, he says. On page 72, he starts the directions. He completes them on page 75. It's a short read. I'm not going to unpack it in the detail I would in my workshop. If you want more, go to some of the recordings on my work, various workshops. I have audio recordings <clears throat> on a weekly basis on my website. I have uh, video recordings on YouTube that will do a little bit deeper dive because they're weekly workshops and they have a lot of dialogue with the people after the presentations. So we set up a, a time and a place where there's plenty of time where we're not rushed and a place where we're not interfered with. Meaning that there, there's not gonna be any interruption with people. There are no cell phones, there's no radios or televisions. Everything is off. This is a very sacred moment. I tell people to bring food and beverage because we're there for a while. The way I open it up is <clears throat> with the set aside prayer and the third step prayer so that we're comfortable in the presence of the spirit. And then I read a paragraph from the big book, page 72, and I have them read the next paragraph and we alternate reading the material on step five until we come to page 75. The benefit of that, it's an icebreaker. Even me who has experience listening to fifth steps is always a little bit intimidated by this very sacred process. And it's wonderful to hear our voices in the room in reading very safe material guided just by reading what's in the big book back and forth. And we kind of get used to then and kind of settle down into hearing one another's voice. Step five is not a discussion from my standpoint. Again, I'm sharing my knowledge, my experience, my interpretation. There are no rules or regulations. There are some suggestions in this material. From a suggestion standpoint, I use the 90-10 rule. The person who is delivering their fourth step does 90% of the talking. The person who is hearing the fifth step does maybe up to a maximum of 10%. I try not to interrupt. I have a, a pad in front of me, a pad of paper in front of me. And I tell them, I'm going to make notes of patterns that I see. I'm going to make notes of questions that I have. I'm going to make notes of observations that I want to make. Unless they're so vital for me to interrupt you, I will not interrupt you. But if in fact there's something that would be lost if it wasn't said at that particular time, then I will say that. And we'll have whatever discussion is spontaneous around that. But, uh, at the end of your resentment inventory, I'll, I'll read to you and interpret my notes. At the end of the sec, uh, fear inventory, 
I will read and and give and and will discuss my notes <clears throat> at the end of the sex and dishonesty inventory and the conclusion of your step four reading. I will give you, I will read to you and we will discuss my notes. <clears throat> and then when we're done with your fifth step, I will give you my notes because I don't keep a file on people and it might be helpful to you. I do not as a sponsor or a listener to the fourth step, make a list of their character defects. I don't need Al-Anon. I'm not going to enable them by doing their work for them. That's not the point of my notes. At the end of the fifth step, there's an hour's meditation, which I recommend to them. And then I recommend they get a good night's sleep and call me the next day so that they can <clears throat> get their sixth and seventh step instructions. Some people who have finished their fourth step and were waiting to get an appointment, I do give them the suggestion that they prepare their sixth and seventh step while they're waiting to do their fifth step. They find that particularly useful. Bill Wilson rarely talks about relapse as a discipline, but here he does. He did it in step four around the sex inventory, page 70. If you continue this behavior, you're bound to drink, he said. We're sharing this from our experience. It's not academic, I'm paraphrasing. Here on page 72, he says it with regard to the fifth step. The best reason for doing a fifth step, if we skip this vital step, vital life-giving coming from the Latin vitae, we may not overcome drinking. We may not overcome our addiction. Time and time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives. That's what I mean about transparency, shining the light into the darkness, no secrets. No areas of embarrassment and tension that haven't been discussed. Even if in fact, your secrets have been discussed in therapy, your secrets have been discussed in prior fourth steps, your secrets have been discussed in confession. I mean, formal, perhaps religious ritual. If you have tension and embarrassment still, my suggestion is that it gets reviewed here in the fifth step, a complete transparency. What does, I asked my sponsor, what do you mean by transparency? He said, your insides and your outsides match. When he said it in my first year of recovery, I had no idea what he meant, but I said, yes, of course. And after five or 10 years of doing this work, I finally understand what transparency means. He says, this is a humbling experience coming from the word humus, humility. Humus in Latin means earth or dirt, common as, not unique, one of many. Humility. It's not a hangdog, round shoulder, aw shucks. No, that's not it at all. One of my favorite authors, Teresa Bavila, in the 16th century, she said, humility is truth. 
Humility is truth, the recognition of reality and the acknowledgement of its as so. He says on page 73, they got drunk because they never completed their house cleaning. See, now for you perfectionists out there, it's not about crossing the T's and dotting the I's, please. It's about doing the best you can, knowing, knowing full well that you can't do the best. Even if you know better, you're not going to do better. But you're going to do the best you can, knowing that anyway. And that's why Bill says on page 60 at the end of the steps, progress, please. We're not saints. Progress, not perfection. Humility, fearlessness, and honesty. Those are wonderful goals. Vision statements, principles, values to be looked toward and to strive toward. Until they told someone all their life story. All is in italics, meaning an autobiography might be quite good. It was in my case. I didn't know how to do a fourth step with the illustration that's on the PowerPoint right now. I had no idea about that in my first year of recovery. So the man said, do an autobiography, which I did. And it was good enough for me to stick around. It wasn't good enough for me to change. It wasn't good enough for me to get any insight. But I didn't know any of that was available, so I didn't miss it. I did what I was asked to do, and I stuck around until I was thought out sufficiently. It took four years to be able to do the work out of the big book with the guidance of a mechanic. And my turn for somebody who really understands the suggestions in the big book as a textbook and that the steps are there with specific directions. Oh my God, they are so specific once you understand it, but I couldn't read it and understand it on my own. I had to have him help me. It was kind of like a man with one of those miners hats on, you know, the coal miners hats that have that little light in the front. And when he read it with me and I read it with a highlighter and I read it with the questions that he gave me, it was like he turned on the light and I was able to read the words in the big book for the very first time and understand what they meant. He says we need to address everything that creates fear and tension, which makes for our addiction, page 73. We need to sell someone the whole truth. We must be entirely honest with somebody. If we wish to expect to live long or happily in this world. Notice he's not talking about addiction. He's talking about unmanageability. And then he gets very clear. It's up to us to choose who we want to hear our fifth step. It might be our sponsor. It might be our step guide. It might be a good friend. It might be a random selection. It might be a ordained person. It might be a therapist. It might be an attorney. It might be our spouse or significant other. He gives us all these options. And he also says, you can tell parts of it to somebody and other parts of it to somebody else. We're not talking about 
the split that sometimes children do with parents, telling mama something and telling daddy something so they can never put the full story together. That's not the point. Rightly and naturally, we think well before we choose the person or persons. The top of page 74, the person or persons with whom to take this intimate and confidential step and then down at the bottom, he said, such parts of our story we tell to someone who will understand yet be unaffected. You see, there might be parts of our story that have criminal implications, legal implications that need to be talked to with somebody with some legal protection, like an attorney or a therapist or an uh, ordained person. All of those people have the ability to avoid subpoena. Nobody else does unless you have that type of pr legal protection. I've been warned by many attorneys in my workshops. Fourth steps and fifth steps experiences are subpoenable, if that's a word. I won't elaborate on that. I'm not qualified to, but I raise the yellow flag. The rule is that we must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. We need to make sure we have the right person who will keep a confidence and fully understand. Now keep in mind, we're reading this alternatively one paragraph at a time in preparation. So we've gone over all of this, not for commentary, but for clarification to make sure that each of us understands the sacredness of this journey and the specialness of the full revelation, pulling back the curtain on all of the darkness. We explain to our partner what we're about to do and why we have to do it. I read that paragraph and I pause and I ask this person, what are you about to do? They were not prepared by me for that question a little bit of deer in headlights, and then they respond. If they have been prepared in their fourth step, I'm here to reveal everything in my fourth step. Why do you have to do it? So that I can get free of my addiction and live a happy life and a useful life. Those are probably some of the answers that would come out of the book. People would, would be familiar with that. We are on a life and death errand. That's what I mean by sacred. Life and death, that's our addiction. I don't care whether it's a substance addiction, alcohol, drugs, and food, or a process addiction. All the rest of it, like relationships and pornography and sex and gambling and workaholism and exercise, even religious addiction even 12-step meeting addiction. Oh, yes. Challenge yourself. Are you actually making decisions that are voluntary or are you habituated to a compulsion in any of your behavior? We pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. And that's where I quit. Reading. 
because now the person is going to read to me their inventory as I indicated. First, their resentment. Third column, fourth column, third column, fourth column, third column, fourth column. I have them read them together consecutively. It's the first time that this person has read this material that they've been working on for days, weeks, months, sometimes even years, and they're reading it now consecutively out loud for the very first time out loud. It's a powerful process where after one or two or three hours of reading it out loud, the enormity of the corruption of their life and the impact on other people is absorbed into their soul and they begin to crack open. Well, I'm being dramatic because I've seen very dramatic experiences of people. Once they've finished reading and they have said they have finished reading, then I come back to the big book on page 75. Once we have taken this step withholding nothing, I begin. And I close the book again and I look them straight in the eye, withholding nothing. And I ask them two questions. They're not in the big book. They come out of my experience. Did you read everything that you wrote? Because I've been with them now for anywhere from three to eight hours. I won't sit any more than eight hours and I'll help them prepare their fourth step so that it will not exceed eight hours. That's what happens when you have experience. But I, I asked them, have you read everything to me that was there? Because, of course, they could skip things. I'm not looking over their shoulder. And they look at me and they go, yes, I, I read everything there. But I asked them a second question. Did you write down everything that came to your consciousness when you were preparing your written fourth step? Because some people will leave things out. Uh, some people... Are, are, are predisposed to not revealing something. And the man who took me through the work had, that was his mantra almost. In fact, when I came to his door in 1988 to do my uh, fourth step, I knocked on my fifth step, I knocked on the door and he opened it because his family had gone out for the day. We were going to be there by ourselves in his place. <laughs> He opened the door and he didn't even uh, greet me. He just said, have you, are you prepared to reveal everything or have you in a conscious way made a decision to keep any secret? And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm going to reveal everything. Good morning, Jerry, how are you? <laughs> and we went in and had coffee, of course. But I mean, he was, because he had been sober for 16 years and had relapsed for five years. When he got back and evaluated it all, he saw that he kept a secret in his first year because it was nobody's business, he said to himself, not discussing even that with anybody. And he drank at 16 years of really vital recovery. He doesn't know the truth of it. He says this very humbly, but he knows he kept a secret in the first year and he drank after 16 years and he had a hard time coming back. So one of his causes was to make sure that that was very clear to us who were doing a fourth step in preparation to doing a fifth step with him, that in fact, we were prepared to be completely transparent. And then I go to the uh, promises. 
Once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, page 75, listen to these, are phenomenal, poetically wonderful, mystically very accurate. We are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. Notice it's indicative. These are promises very similar to the nine-step promises, but these are indicative, meaning they are saying, this might be your experience. This may have happened. In the ninth step, it says, this has happened. It's a promise. It's conclusive. So in the third step promises on page 63, indicative. On the fifth step promises on page 75, indicative. But there are signs of hope and a direction and a vision of the light. And then this final line, which is beautiful. We feel we are on the broad highway, capital B, capital H, a synonym for the divine, a synonym for the world of the spirit. We are on the broad highway. You see, there's no place to go because we're already there. That's the whole point of Bill's comment on page 53. Bill was a prophet and a mystic in his own right. Well, though my conclusions. How could he have phrased it like that on page 53? God is or God isn't. What is your choice? God is everything or God is nothing. That's a powerful theological statement. God is everything or nothing. We feel we are on the broad highway, capital B, capital H. The journey is the destination. The journey is the destination. We are on the broad highway. Walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Poetic, wonderful image. Walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Capital S, capital U. But then the final instructions. Returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour. And I confirm that's a 60-minute hour, not a 45-minute therapeutic hour. Not a long time period by your standards. No, by my standards, by the big book, an hour is 60 minutes. I don't have any rules. I try to interpret literally what the big book says, fundamentally what the big book says. Literally, fundamentally, in the best and healthiest senses. Carefully reviewing what we have done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know God better. Isn't that interesting? Well, I find it so. We have taken weeks, months, and or years writing a fourth step. We have just taken hours, anywhere from one to, you fill in the blank on the hours, uh, reading our fifth step. And both the fourth step and our fifth step are all about us. And yet it says here, we know God better. Okay. My interpretation is we've removed uh, the obstacles in us by doing four and five 
to the sunlight that is in us, and therefore that sunlight is more known and present. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know God better. Taking this book, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps, page 59, carefully reviewing the first five proposals. That's a synonym for steps. Bill doesn't like to use the same word in consecutive sentences, so he uses different words. More about that in, five, in six and seven. We ask if we have omitted anything, for we are building an arch through which we shall walk a free person at last. Then he gives uh, the construction uh, words about uh, solid stones, cement, foundation, mortar, sand. These are all questions that are rhetorically to ask us, have we been complete? Did we write down everything that we were conscious of? Did we read everything that we had written down and were conscious of? That's really the point of it, looking at step one. It's a meditation. Of course, it's a prayer. We ask God anytime we're talking to the Spirit, that's prayer. Anytime we're listening to the Spirit, that's meditation. So he's asking us to look at step one. What did we do? Did we have an experience of complete defeat? Did we have an experience of the, our body and our mind and our will are ineffective in dealing with this? It might have been progressive and it might have been superficial or it might have been deep. It could have been broad. Who, it's your experience and it'll change each time you do this work if you choose to do it more than once. Don't burn your fourth and fifth step notes, please, when you're finished with it. I understand the need for human ritual. I studied to be a Catholic priest for seven years. Believe me, I know about liturgy and rubrics and ritual. It's a human need. You're welcome to do something symbolic at that point, but don't burn or tear up or throw away your fourth and fifth step. These are going to be the resources for you to do your sixth step, an inventory of character defects. These are going to be the resources for doing your inventory of the eighth step, your list of harms. Bill says that, in fact, in the eighth step. We made a list of harms that we have done. We did so when we took inventory. Well, if you've burned it or thrown it away, how are you going to access it? The man who took me through the steps said, keep it until you're finished your ninth step. And then, in fact, if you choose to get rid of it in some ritualistic way. He never told me how to do that. Each person comes to their own conclusion as to that final sacred gesture. It's about not being rushed, but it's also about not being overly concerned about every detail. Bill ended step four inventory with words I wish he had put up front. 
on page 71, he said, at the conclusion of step four, we've reviewed our grosser handicaps. Yeah, big picture. Now, at first we're looking for a white shark. Eventually, as you mature emotionally and spiritually develop and evolve over time, you're dealing with one pound trout and perhaps one ounce mosquitoes irritations at a point of your personal development. But certainly in the first one or two times that you do this, it's about the big picture stuff, not, not the tiny crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And I say that because of my familiarity with about 30 to 40% of the people that come to my workshop are invested in perfection. It's not healthy. Progress is healthy. Doing the best we can, that's healthy. Perfection is an impossibility because we're material beings. We can do the best we can, as I said earlier, embracing the fact that we can't even do the best we can on a regular basis. We can want to. But even within that, we're doing the best we can, and we need to trust that and be willing to do better when, in fact, we're capable of doing better. It's not an invitation to cut yourself any slack, but it is an invitation to be realistic and use common sense. And that's where sponsorship comes in. I think sponsorship is the most important ingredient in all the moving parts, because if you have a active relationship with an experienced sponsor, hear the words, active meaning you're talking to this person on a regular basis, experience meaning they know something and they've had an experience, hopefully a spiritual awakening. That is that change in them that is given as a promise of the 12th step by finishing the first nine steps, a change in the way we think and feel and behave and it's done to us, not by us. Years later, I added, but not without us. It's a collaboration. It's a cooperation. The last lines on page 75 really captures it poetically by Bill, as I mentioned. <clears throat> Walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. That's our image. Hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. I'm going to stop here and... Um, We'll take a five minute break.
I'm going to continue now with uh, steps six and seven. As I indicated in my opening comments, I find them to be life-changing steps, as I will explain here in a minute. We confess our step four. That word is what the Oxford group used to describe their step. They had six steps that Bill Wilson used and Ebby Thatcher used. And all of the early AAs used those first six steps. You can see them on page 263 in the big book in one of the stories, if you're interested in seeing a, at least an approximation of what one person thought were the process steps that he went through. And so then we come to the sixth step on page 76. It's just a paragraph. It's almost like you could miss it. It's so short and it's almost on the surface not very substantive. If we can answer to our satisfaction, well, what are we talking about here? I'm a big book literalist and fundamentalist. I have to ask, oh, wait, wait, Bill's making a transition here. If we can answer to our satisfaction, oh, the questions on page 75, the meditation questions. Have we been thorough? Have we been meticulous? The step nine uh, words on pages 83 and 84 uh, of the promises talks about painstaking. I hope you've taken the time to look up that word painstaking sometime in your journey. It doesn't mean pain. It doesn't connote suffering at all. Painstaking means careful with details. That's all it means. Have you been thorough? If we can answer to our satisfaction after that meditation, we look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. We emphasize that, of course, on page 47, where Bill says in step two, that's the cornerstone. Willingness is the cornerstone, the first stone that's placed on the foundation that sets the direction of the building of that entire spiritual arch. Willingness. Quite frankly, if you got nothing else, and I know you will get lots out of this from either my experience or from the sharing that takes place. But if you only heard one word that you just took to your heart like a brand willingness. That's the key. I look back on my history. There's lots of moving parts. And there's lots of people and occasions and circumstances that contributed to my development. But the one key word that's constant, a thread throughout the entire journey of 37 years, is willingness. I don't know why I was willing. That's the grace but I was willing, and that's my responsibility. Grace and willingness. It's an alchemaic formula, alchemy. Look it up if you don't know what it is. Do a Google search. 
It's got a wonderful background. Alchemy, a pseudoscience from the Middle Ages where snake oil salesmen sold bottles of elixir because it promised people either good health or that it would change iron ore into gold. Oh yeah, people believed it. Hucksters. And people are gullible sometimes because they are so desperate. But alchemy is a great word because it explains what happens in a spiritual awakening. A change in the way we think and feel and behave and it's done to us, not by us, but not without us. I can't explain it. Willingness and grace. I can observe it. But there's a there's a space between the touch points of willingness and grace. I don't know which comes first and it doesn't make any difference. I know they work in combination. I was taken to a place of willingness. I, this poem came to me in meditation to resolve this question. I was taken to a place of willingness, hear the grace but I was willing to be taken. Here, my responsibility. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Right there, the words themselves reveal, oh, this is again about powerlessness. I made the open comment earlier. I hope you heard it. And if you didn't, I'm reinforcing it. Under each step is powerlessness. Step one, of course, is about powerlessness. No choice. We become so brain dead to the word powerless. I, I like to challenge you to challenge yourself with a new word. Whatever that is, the words I use are no choice. No choice. And yet in steps two and three, we're asked to make a choice. We're asked to make a decision. But not about our addiction, and not about managing our lives. We're asked on page 53 to make a decision about God or no God. In step three, relationship or no relationship. That's the power of our will. That's the purpose of our will. And in step 10, at the bottom of page 85, Bill says that's the proper use of the will. He doesn't say it the way I'm going to say it, but he implies it. The proper use of the will is to place ourselves in alignment with reality. Some people use the term with God's will. I don't. I've thought it through very carefully. I don't believe God has will. That makes God a human being with superpowers. I don't believe God has will. I wrote a paper on it. They'll be coming out. These meditations will be coming out released on a weekly basis beginning in June. A thorough and very deep reflection on God. When is God powerless? Does God really have a plan? Does God have will and willpower? These are the things I spend my time thinking about. Page 76, we have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. 
are we now ready to let God remove from us all things which we have admitted are objectionable? Well, Bill doesn't tell us to make a list. But I did because how could I admit that things are objectionable unless I really actually identified in me what does that mean? So I took my fourth step and any notes that I had on my fifth step and I made a list of character defects. I had probably 30 or 40. I don't remember, it was over 30 years ago, but there was a lot. And then I thought, you know, that's overwhelming. So let's, I'm analytical as you might already know. So I let, let's see what the families look like. Can we, can we put them into groups? And I took the 40, let's assume, and I grouped them into about ten, uh, four groups of 10. All right. Because patient, impatience is a form of anger. Uh, procrastination is a form of fear. And so I was able to understand a little bit more the character, the exact nature of the sources of my problems. And then, of course, I continued to squeeze it. And what I found is that the big book was quite right. I did this backwards in that sense. I went from my own experience and distilled it down to four groups, and I mean, ten, uh, 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 10 groups, and then to four groups. And, and the big book was right in the 12 and 12 confirms instincts gone awry. Instincts, biological survival instincts, psychological survival instincts, unhealthy coping strategies is how Dr. Berger refers to them. And recently in our emotional sobriety workshop, he called them emotional default positions. Wonderful. Unhealthy default positions. It takes away that negative aspect of it. This is how human beings behave. Resentment and fear and sex. And they don't go away. They get minimized. Bill says that in step 10. Read it. Watch my uh, workshop on step 10. Pages 84 and 85 in the big book. Bill says, watch for resentment, fear, dishonesty, and selfishness. Watch for these when they crop up. He doesn't say if. Step 10 is a recap of steps one through nine. Step 10 is a spot check inventory. When we're disturbed, there's something wrong with us. We're out of alignment with reality. The big book has such internal integrity. What it says in one place, it says in another place. Bill had a, a total strategy and a whole set of tactics for us as to how to live life with contentment and happiness and free of our addiction at the very least and full of our happiness at the very most as we deal effectively with our unmanageability. But underneath this is our powerlessness. In step four, he gave us a prayer to deal with resentment. He suggested prayer to deal with our fear. He suggested prayer to deal with our sex and dishonesty. He suggested that we're powerless over selfishness and that we need to be in relationship with power to even deal with our unmanageability.
Are we now ready to let God remove all the things we have admitted are objectionable? Oh, so as the third step says, God can and will. Does God have the power and does God have the caring? These are questions of steps two and three for you to ask and answer. How big is your God? Do you need to upgrade? Do you need to have a larger God? Do you need to replace the image and the characteristics of the God of your childhood, the God of your family of origin, the God of your religious tradition, the God of even of AA for you? Do you need to replace that because you need a, pow a more powerful and a more loving and a more intelligent God? Questions? Is your God big enough? If we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. There it is again. We're not even capable of having the power to be willing. Oh, we can be willing to be willing to be willing to be willing. It's a little remote. That's what I discovered. Although I didn't discover it right away. I did my fifth step on a Friday. I did my sixth step work on a Saturday. Took just a couple hours. I, I really recommend that people don't spend too much time on their sixth and seventh step because underneath it, it's all about powerlessness anyway. So it's not about us working on our character defects, please. It's about the acknowledgement that we're responsible for how they manifest, but we can't do anything about the source of it. That's a huge distinction. I'll talk lots more about it in a minute. There's been lots of conversation, maybe even controversy um, in step six and seven about the difference between shortcomings and defects of characters. Are they different? When Bill was asked in a discussion that I heard on one of his tapes, he just laughed. He said, oh, no, there's no difference. I was taught in my basic English course not to use the same words in consecutive sentences. So I just changed the words as synonyms the words mean the same thing. That ended any conversation on it for me. Shortcoming and character defects are the same. In my uh, way of life document, which is a 68 page document I use <clears throat> in uh, my workshops, I have uh, a description of a personality disorder. It comes from the DSM, and I find that it helped me understand these are just normal psychological disturbances in us. Now, some have more robust defects than others, and some don't have the same list. And that's the list of uh, narcissism was what had attracted me to really understand a lot of how I operated. You can see it at the bottom of the screen there. Narcissistic personality disorder. It's a form of selfishness and self-centeredness. Not everybody has this exaggerated defect as a actual diagnosable disorder, 
but it gives us some indication as the implications of selfishness and self-centeredness and an exaggerated sense of self-importance. I'm not gonna read it all, but some of it. Preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. A belief of being special, requiring excessive admiration, a sense of entitlement, selfishness and taking advantage of others to achieve their own ends, lacking empathy, envy of others, behaviors or attitudes that are arrogant, haughty, patronizing, or contemptuous. When I was looking at unmanageability in my 10th year of sobriety, and I was talking with Dr. Alan Berger, my therapist at the time, about my experiences with it and my dismay, he just smiled and he went over to his DSM and he copied this out of his DSM for me right there and he gave it to me. And he said, here's the characteristics of narcissistic personality disorder. You might be interested in that because it has the only thing missing in that description on that page is your picture. Now he was saying it kindly, but he wanted me to really understand that I was in trouble. And he says, it's irreversible and irreme irremediable. You can't change it through therapy and you can't change it through medication. A few years later, when we decided to partner in co-facilitating emotional sobriety, I asked him about that. And he said, well, you were a seven and a half on a scale of one to 10. Today, you're probably a two and a half and that's as good as it's gonna get but it's been your, your, your fidelity to your spiritual program, your way of life, as they call steps 10, 11, and 12, your way of optimal living, 10, 11, and 12, as Bill calls it, as he opens up to step 10 in the big book on page 84, we enter the world of the spirit. He said, it's that fidelity to 10, 11, and 12 that has in fact modified so that you are now a decent human being most of the time. This is a uh, chart that I use in my workshops to have the same kind of turnaround in the character defects that people experience when they do column three and column four in the resentment inventory. Uh, that, ter that term turnaround is not in the big book. It comes out of um, the literature by, um, forget her name now, uh, uh, Loving What Is. Um, somebody will put that in the chat, I'm sure. Loving what is, and um, she uses that term of turnaround. That is going from the darkness to the light. Column three is my beliefs, column four are my motives. And the turnaround is the awakening that I've been living in a delusion and I have responsibility to live in the truth. Here, the turnaround is my character defect, identifying what the behavior is but also what I'm defending by this ego defense mechanism is the term I used when I studied psychology back in the 70s. Unhealthy coping strategies is the current terminology. What am I defending? And then what would the virtue be that would be opposite the defect? Of course, let's be very clear. Impatience is a defect. Patience would be the virtue. 
there are forms of anger and serenity, of course, or acceptance. But then the real key for the turnaround is how would it look behaviorally? It's one thing to say, I want to be patient. It's another thing to say, what does that look like? How do my feet move? How does my mouth move? How do my gestures move? How does my body move when I'm patient? So in the same way, I made the bedevilments very practical as a picture behaviorally. It's really important. My behavior tells me and you who I am, not my words, not my feelings, not my thoughts, not my writing. My behavior tells me who I am. My behavior tells me what I believe. My behavior tells me what my principles are. My feet tell me the truth. My head and heart lie to me regularly because they cut me slack. It's not intentional many of the time. Sometimes it is, of course. The whole point of this process is to become more conscious and more conscious and more conscious. With more light, we see more. The good news, it's like a dimmer switch. We lean into it with our shoulder. We lean into it with our shoulder and we push that dimmer switch up away from the darkness into the light. And with each click of the dimmer switch, there's more light. We don't know there's more light until there's an accumulation of light that is sufficient to tell us there's more light. And the good news is there's more light. And the good news is with more light, we see more. And the bad news is with more light, we see more. With more light, we have more shadows. So this is a never-ending process of improving progress, not perfection. It's on the, uh, after the articulation, the list of the 12 steps on page 60 in the big book. It says, relax. It's not about perfection. We are not saints. It's about progress, not perfection. But we can make progress when we set ideals, when we set visions, when we have a, a, a chart like this, which will help us look at, well, what, what, would I, what would I like to be in contrast to I am right now? What would I like to be in order to be a decent person that I admire, let alone that are connected to and contributing to the community that I'm involved in. But what about step seven? It continues right afterwards. When ready, we say something like this, and there's a prayer. My creator, isn't it wonderful that it starts with that word? My creator? I have just looked at all of the twists and turns and the bends in my personality, my character defects. And I've seen, and the book supports it, that I'm powerless to change it. Powerless over these character defects. There's nothing that I can do except observe them and want to be better and be willing to be changed. And the implication is that there is a possibility that I can be changed. My creator, you made me, please fix me. 
I'm coming back to the manufacturer because I've been recalled and I need to have some parts repaired. It's pretty phenomenal the way Bill has it structured. The first part is to accept our powerlessness though. We don't work on our character defects. In fact, we pray for their removal, my creator. I also find it wonderful that step three does not have an amen at the end. Step three, my experience with prayers is that all prayers have an amen because it signals the prayer is finished. So be it. Thus it is. That's what amen, amen means. And yet the third step prayer on page 63 does not have an amen. I don't know why, but my thoughts are that it's because it's a beginning, as Bill says there in that material. Step three is only a beginning. So this is the opening for a process that has a stage of step four, step five, step six, step seven, looking at identifying, naming all of the clouds in us that are impediments and obstacles to that relationship to the sunlight that is down deep in us. And steps four through seven are the removal of those clouds, that darkness, so that the sunlight can shine in us, to us, and eventually through us. And step seven is the prayer to have that cloud removed. Amen. We begin with step three, a commitment to the work. We finish the work knowing that we still need the maker, the creator, to bring us home. Amen. I had this experience, as I mentioned, of making this list of character defects and shrinking it down to see what, in fact, uh, the underlying exact nature is. And um, so I was very clear, and I prayed the prayer. Now, this man had me write out my own seven-step prayer as he had me write out my own third-step prayer. Not to improve the prayers in the book, but to understand them. But I prayed the prayer from the book on Sunday after doing a little meditation and work, finishing up my six and seven work. And um, on Monday morning, I woke up and the primary defect of character that I had was still there. I was so disappointed. I mean, really, seriously, I was five years sober. I had expected to come out with some wholeness on Monday. And it, no, it was a dominating character defect that was promised to undermine my professional life, my personal life, and my program. Page 71 is very clear. If you continue this behavior, you're sure going to get drunk. I went to my step meeting that week, a men's stag crosstalk meeting that had been started by my step guide as a accountability meeting for doing the work for many people, many of the men that were very serious about this step work. <clears throat> and the man shared there something that's not in the big book, something that's not in the 12 and 12. He shared that he prayed specifically for the removal of a specific character defect. I listened to it. 
because this was such an important issue for me. My life, my profession, my relationship, everything I valued was on the line and I knew it at the core level of my being. I knew that this was so, so I heard it and I, I took, uh, I thought about it for a day or two because I didn't want to rush into anything. And uh, then on Saturday, I went into my bedroom and I shut my door. Don't want anybody to see me get on my knees because that was this man's recommendation. He said, we get on our knees not to get our attention. We get on our knees to excuse me, not to get God's attention, we get on our knees to get our attention. It's an act of subordination, an act of humility. Chapter 7 in the 12 and 12 has a wonderful treatise on humility. Humbly asked is the prayer. Humbly asked. We need to know what humility is. If you want a really good spiritual read on humility, read chapter 7 in the 12 and 12. It comes from the, as I mentioned earlier, the Latin word humus, which means earth or dirt, not unique, not special. And I went to pray this prayer specifically for the removal of this specific character defect, and I couldn't. I had to stop because I became very conscious that I wasn't willing at all. I enjoyed this character defect. I didn't want it to go away, and I didn't know that I didn't know that. I had spent months doing my fourth step, hours doing my fifth step, hours doing my sixth step, preparing and discussing with my step guide all of this preparation for the seventh step, and yet I discovered underneath the underneath my consciousness at the unconscious level it didn't get revealed until I was ready to pray specifically. And then as soon as I recognized the specificity of it, I could feel the resistance. It was startling. But I remembered what Bill had said in step six. If you're not willing, pray for the willingness. And I began to pray specifically for the willingness to be willing to be willing, remote. But I knew that it was necessary. And I called the man, the step guide, who had taken me through the steps. And I revealed to him what I had just experienced as an epiphany. Wow, what an awakening. I, I went to pray specifically. I realized I wasn't willing, but I prayed for the willingness. And I was feeling quite heroic, quite insightful. And he said, wow, Herb, what a terrific insight. Now stop the behavior. I hope you're hearing this. Because he gave me a whole new insight. I'm powerless over the inclination. But I'm 100% responsible for the behavior, how that inclination manifests. And he said, this is how it's going to work. Pray on a daily basis for the change in the inclination, the character disorder. And call me on a daily basis and tell me how you're behaving. Within 48 hours of following that instruction, 
the behavior went away and has never returned. This is 32 years ago, 33. Within 48 hours, the behavior changed forever. I kept praying specifically because the inclination was still there. I kept accountability specifically because the inclination was still there and the inclination went away after two years. I stopped uh, calling my step guide on a daily basis. We moved it to weekly and then we moved it to monthly as I improved in terms of the inclination. But it took two years for the inclination to go away and it's never come back. If you followed this, this is alchemic. This is magical. And yet it's real because it's my experience. We don't work on our character defects. We pray for them, for their removal, for their healing. I call this a healing prayer. And we hold ourselves accountable because we're human. We pray because we're powerless. We talk to somebody about it in accountability because we're human. And that's the one-two punch. Well, think about step 10 and, and the, the way Bill has structured that. Step 10 on pages 84 and 85. He has four pieces of step 10. Pray, talk to somebody, make amends, turn your thoughts to helping somebody else. Those first two characteristics of step 10 are what this man suggested. Pray and talk to somebody. Bill knew it intuitively as the human dynamic. He knew about human behavior. He knew about human psychology, but he also knew about the spiritual power of God. And it was a combination. The Oxford group calls this work soul surgery. Soul surgery. We ask the divine surgeon to come in and remove the cancer. Remove the cancer. Surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. The wonderful lots of images there with prayer and meditation and inventory. In the 12 and 12, Bill calls this essentially the rite of passage. He doesn't use those terms, but he says this brings the boy to the man in our terminology today of gender neutral, we would say this brings the child to the adult. That's the rite of passage. Most countries other than Western countries have a formal rite of passage, especially for men, to bring them from childhood to adulthood. This is our spiritual rite of passage, steps four through seven to adulthood. Of course, steps eight and nine are the final pieces of that rite of passage, which we'll talk about in a minute. The bedevilments. I don't mean to imply anything religion, religious with that terminology, but given the Oxford group approach, I love to call this exorcism. That's what this process is. It removes the strings in us that are tied to people and circumstances. We feel like puppets on a string. The term bedevilment, to be controlled as if by devils. 
it's just a poetic analogy. It's not meant to be religious at all. I really mean, don't, don't mean that at all. There's no significance there other than the poetic significance, the metaphor of it, so that we kind of like, oh, yeah, this is how I heal. This is how I get better. A rehabilitation with myself, this stage of four through seven is a rehabilitation of myself, a turning from my self-centeredness to other-centeredness. Other meaning God with a capital O or higher power or energy or the force or the higher self or the best in me. Those are all subjects for steps two and three. I've done a specific workshop on those. You'll find those on YouTube, steps two and three. Bill's chapter four allowed me to identify my own agnosticism at 10 years of sobriety. My own agnosticism. Oh, I thought I believed until I looked at how my feet moved in relationship to my belief and there was no harmony. There was dissonance between my belief about God and my behavior in my life. That's called agnosticism. I doubted by my practical behavior the existence and relevance of a power other than myself. And I was brought to a place of faith through that dynamic I talked about in a superficial way today from pages 53 to 55. On 53, God is or God isn't, what is your choice? And on page 55, the answer to the two questions that he poses on page 45, where and how are we to find this power? The attitude of searching fearlessly, thinking honestly, searching willingly, deep down inside. Changed my whole program brought the curtain back so that I was very, for the very first time, able to have an effective relationship with a God of my understanding, a God of my choice. And that God has changed as I have changed. Gandhi promised that. The name for God, your concept of God will change as you do. Five years ago, I had the word mystery with a capital M. Over this last year, I've had the word flow with a capital F. These are meanings to me, and I don't have to explain them to anybody. But I live as if it's true in my morning meditation. I am in support of those metaphors and those concepts. And I try to live in an awareness of that. One of my teachers is Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest, and he says, we all have humanity and character defects and personality disorders, and we either transform them or we transmit them. I love crisp, in-your-face sayings. We either transform it or we transmit it. But I'm going to put a, that on steroids. We're always transmitting. Who we are is what we communicate. We are all so sensitized to the word pandemic. 
inoculation. If we have the spiritual malady, unmanageability, we are transmitting the bedevilments. If we have the spiritual awakening, we are transmitting the light. And you have to ask yourself, am I transmitting darkness or am I transmitting light? And to what extent? There's a apocryphal story, a made up story to make a point, I'm sure, about Michelangelo standing in front of a block of marble in the Vatican back in the day. And somebody came up, Michelangelo's there with a hammer in his hand and a chisel. And there's a big block of marble. And the visitor says, so what are you gonna make? He said, I don't know. Michelangelo said, I don't know. What I'm going to do is chip away everything that doesn't belong and see what emerges. I love that in step seven. I'm going to chip away everything that doesn't belong and see what the true self emerges. The step, excuse me, the, the, the prayer of St. Francis is uh, Bill Wilson's favorite prayer. He includes it in his step 11 explanation and commentary in the 12 and 12 uh, for good reason. And it's become one of my favorite prayers, especially when I'm working with other people in a group like this. The, uh, and we'll pray it later on, mm, because it talks about becoming a channel. Becoming a channel, becoming a channel of light. I see sponsorship as being a lantern. I'm very clear I'm not the light. I'm very clear I'm in pursuit of being brighter with more light. But I'm also very clear that I'm a lantern and I need to keep the lenses clean so that the light that is in me shines in me to me, but in me to me through me so that it can shine on the path for other people. So that the other people can walk that path that I have walked in the light of my experience to have their own experience, not my experience. We're lanterns on a path to shine the light on the path so that other people can walk that path in the light of our experience to have their own experience. I just wanted to share that this is just, it's always amazing. There's always another like layer that you help uncover and uh i want to i mean one one thing i want to go back to that thing of uh it was on page 60 i think you said where they say progress not perfection yes. it says we claim spiritual progress yes. rather than spiritual per perfection yes. that's a whole new <laughs> a new layer a new so it's so interesting fascinating yeah. like that's the whole point of this work right that's what you have always said um and also then it was very um helpful about the uh well i love those columns what did i do before you know what was the behavior what was the defect what what behavior is engendered from that what's the opposite of that what, what, what would be the new behavior and the whole idea of you know we don't work on our character defects. Actually, I got that message from you before, and it was really, really helpful because I was, you know, originally from Al-Anon, and then I uh, was in SLAA, and 
I'm still in that, still a love addict, I guess, um, and codependent. But um, I, you know, I thought it was, I had to work on, I had to do, I had to be perfect. I had to do something, you know, and all you have to do is just be willing. Uh, but you have to, you have to be willing to have it removed, but you have to be willing to do the behavior yes. that will not have the defect. <laughs> so. Yeah, that, that's really a, 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 a definite concrete um, sign, litmus test, of willingness Yeah, is the behavior. Yeah. If, in fact, you're not behaving differently, you're not willing. Right, right. And it's not, and it's, it's an awareness, too. And I did, I'll share that, you know, when I first did your workshop and I read my, my sixth, my fifth, I'm sorry, yeah, my sixth step to my sponsor, um, and... Um, you know, with the spirit of, I just have to be willing. And I remember leaving and feeling changed after that reading. It's very, very profound. And I came home <laughs> and I ran into a neighbor. And one of my defects is, is um, you know, gossiping about my ex-boyfriend because I think it made me feel a little bit better to be sort of, you know, and my neighbor is a friend of his. So like every time we would get together, we would sort of, you know, talk. There was something little bit of, you know, digging that made me feel a little better if I could, you know, uh, you know put him down a little bit or complain about him or something. It, and I think there was also, there was a connection. Like if I was talking about him, I was somehow connected to him and, and not ready to let go of that, that addiction, right? So, um, so I remember seeing my neighbor that night and uh, I was getting out of my car and I, my normal thing would have been to say something and I found my, I observed myself not do it. Yeah. And it was profound because I always, <laughs> for two years after breaking up with this guy, I was, anytime I saw Herb, I would want to, I would want to, um, you know, um, engage in this behavior that was not productive, that did not, was not fr from my higher self, was not even, you know, just a waste of time. Yeah. And not, not, uh, so anyway, yeah. It, but seeing it and then, but I felt that that just, I was changed. I didn't choose, I, I guess I did choose not to, but I also felt like I was being taken to that other higher place. Right. Right. And I was really grateful for it. Yeah. Well, and see, there's the awareness of my responsibility and the grace that comes with it. I mean, as you just said, and and it happens. And, and it's really important for us to be conscious of it happening. Now, it might not be as it was with me until after it's happened. I was not aware of things happening when they were happening. And the, all of the nine-step promises had been very much fulfilled in my life. And I didn't know that they were there until I finished them. And I stood on the path looking back in a meditation one day in January of 1989 at the whole year of doing the step work. And I go, oh, I have been radically changed. And I had no awareness that it had been happening. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I recently went through the 12 steps for the very first time um, and had a few glorious months of recovery. Um, and then about three weeks ago, um, I picked up food again. Um, and I've, I've now got, you know, um, a little over a week now um, under my belt of abstinence again. And I'm going through the steps again, but I'm finding myself stuck in like right around step two, three, and finally realizing that my God is just not big enough. I, I still have the God of my childhood. Um, 
And I'm just wondering if you can speak a little more to how I can hone in on my higher power without feeling that, that guilt of believing that he's a, a different God. Like, how can I make him bigger? My God is the God of the Bible. Um, but how can I make him bigger without feeling like I'm making him up, if that makes any sense? Uh, yes, it makes total sense. And it's a wonderful, insightful question. Um, and it'll be a process. Number one, embrace the set aside prayer. Okay. Are you working on or have you finished step one? I have finished step one. I'm on step two. Wonderful. Um, you might take a look at um, the material on my website. Um, there's some recordings, audio recordings that would guide you through chapter four and um, they and and there's also on the website a set of assignments with regard to step two um, and you might find those very helpful in terms of reading and processing the big book i was taken through chapter four three different times with three different questions and three different highlighting exercises and um, that's at 10 years of sobriety. And that's what changed. That's what opened the curtain, as I said earlier, for me to really see that I had been an agnostic up to that point, not realizing that I was a practical agnostic, not a theoretical agnostic, a practical agnostic. And so that's the kind of um, sort of process that I experienced that opened it up for me. A process, though, not, not, I'm not giving you a formula or an answer. I'm giving you uh, some suggestions and a process for you to have an ex a new experience with it, perhaps, uh, if you kind of follow those suggestions. Okay. Okay, yeah. My, I think I'm, I'm stuck in that little thing where I think, yes, I believe God can do this for others but maybe I'm not worthy of recovery yeah. and that well, not what I want to believe. It's just, it's just where I go to. The whole point of the set aside is to detach you from the deep roots that you have that are blocking you. They're, they're, they're making it impossible for you to transcend your current agnosticism. And so the set aside prayer is a prayer to the spirit to cut loose the, the, the ropes that are binding you so that you can be lifted to a place where you'll have a, do, a new experience. And one of the things you might want to challenge is your use of the word he and him. Okay. <laughs> Ooh. That'll be different. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because of course, well, at least from my perspective, whatever this reality is as a spirit, as an immaterial being, there's no gender. Yeah, I have a problem with that. <laughs> I, I mean, I have a problem with that in my head. Just, yeah, I understand. you know, I'm no I, longer a mother either. I'm a, I'm a birthing person, <laughs> apparently. So, you know, I mean, not, I am not talking about a, philosophical position concerning vocabulary that's semantics. Okay. I'm talking about a theological investigation to what is the truth? What is it that you actually mean by spirit 
immaterial reality. What does infinite even mean to you? These are rhetorical now for okay. you to look at because you, you are mired in earth speak. And the big book suggests that our earth speak is completely inadequate. Bill was very attuned to theology and he understood that any word that we choose is going to be wrong because it's a word that we choose. It's a finite word to describe an infinite reality. Okay. Oh, you're lot, you're, you're lot to think on. <laughs> well, you're 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 in. Yep, yeah, you're in for uh, an exercise. You're in for an exercise, and be willing to be surprised. But right now, I think you're willing to be open, but it's very reluctant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. You bet. You bet. Thank you. What I'm hearing is that we, we, we can't really do anything about the defects. Uh, we don't work on them. I think I heard you say we're 100% responsible for the behavior. So there's sort of a little subtlety there that I, I want It's not subtle. <laughs> okay. But how can you work on one without the other, I guess, is because... The behavior is from the defect, right? Yes. And I think you said in 48 hours you removed. No, I didn't say that. I removed. Oh, they were removed. Yes. Okay. And then in two years, the inclinations were removed. You did this through your, your, your daily prayer. And uh, okay. But, okay, so I guess that's the subtlety work versus prayer to higher power. The words aren't interchangeable. The, the, our concept of working on our defects is, is... We're not working on our defects. We're managing our behaviors. We're, we're managing our... That's a wonderful way to phrase it. We're attempting to manage our behavior despite our defect. In other words, I have a defect of, and this is true, of impatience, all right? But I can pause, be very aware of the impatience and not speak impatiently, speak with patience. That's what the step 10 allows us to do. It says pause, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Pause when agitated mm -hmm. and then pray Mm -hmm. Right. All right. Mm -hmm. And so, and so I'm able to manage my behavior because I'm responsible for it. I do have free will, but I don't have free will to change the exact nature of that character defect that's embedded in me somehow that needs a spiritual intervention. That's the, at least the thesis in the big book. So then uh, the spiritual in intervention comes at different times for different people, but the hope is eventually then these inclinations, these defects are gone from our, from our nature? Try it, see what happens. <laughs> no, it's my experience. 
it, it is your experience. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Okay, so then you really don't have to work on them or you have to continue to... I don't have to work on fidelity. Correct. I don't have to work on integrity. No, it, it's, part of, it's part of now a habit that I have because I was given the grace to be different. To be different. But other things you still have. Or still. I'm still an imperfect human being. <laughs> okay. If you're exposed to me at any length on my workshops, you will know that. <laughs> Rainy is laughing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, thank you. That helps. Uh, no, that's great. Uh, progress, not perfection, but we do make progress. That's right. We become better, more decent human beings. Right, right. But but we're not we're not in control of of removing those those defective inclinations. That's the thesis in the big book. It happens to be my experience. So I I don't make black and white statements about it. It's just like, I I have knowledge of the big book. I have cooperated with the suggestions and I have found freedom. I have people who I care about and I love in my life and I find their behavior intolerable sometimes. That's your problem. It is my problem. And I, is it my self-centeredness? Oh, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know you. I, I don't know I, you. So, but, I know, uh, but how do I, I know you don't know. How do I go find that? Yeah, do a four step on them. Yeah. What are your beliefs about reality? What are your beliefs about them? What are your motives? The third and fourth column of the resentment inventory are phenomenal in terms of getting an accurate appraisal of what your problem is. But you'll need help with that. Yeah, I've done, I've done quite a bit of work on it. Have, you done, have you done the third and fourth column worksheets that I propose uh, in my uh, workshops? I, I have, but okay. I've done it. You know how you say, be specific? Yes. It's been powerful and helped me with big time yes. with specific, Wonderful. but the, the underlining, you know, it yeah. just keeps coming back up is the piece that I feel like I'm at right now. It's like, I don't know, maybe just every time it happens, I pull out column three and four again, I don't know. Well, uh, it sounds it sounds like it's worth the effort to be that uh, committed and substantive to when it happens, pull out column three and column four and do specifically that work with the guidance of somebody who can help you and be an objective sounding board so that you can get underneath, underneath, underneath to see where is this coming from? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure where it was this, this morning, but something you said in there, I thought, Maybe, maybe it's just simple as I just have to accept that this is how this person is and oh, yeah, that's basic. for the rest of her life. And no, no, that's basic. Acceptance is, in fact, the key to serenity. Yeah. 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 And then just to a, an earlier caller, I, I just thought I'd suggest to lean into the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That's a, that takes away the gender and all kinds of stuff. Nobody can I like that. It. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And and the word spirit is neutral. Exactly. With a capital S. It's neutral. 
nothing that conflicts with the Holy Spirit. If you well, you don't have to use holy. You you can use spirit with a capital S, spirit with a capital S, and uh, and that really neutralizes a lot of things. And and the word uh, spirit comes from the Greek word spiros, s p i r o s, which means breath. Yeah, the breath of life. All right. So um, from my standpoint, those kind of roots really give some power to the word. It's, it helped me a lot in moving from that traditional yes. childhood teaching to where I am today without having to, you know, get rid of whatever. You don't have to jettison your childhood beliefs or your, or your, your attachment to the Bible or the Quran or, 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 or the uh, whatever, um, the Torah. You, you, no, absolutely. They're all very compatible if in fact you keep them in an understanding and a context that all of these were written by human beings at a particular time in a particular culture and underneath it, they're all saying the same thing, literally all saying the same thing. That's the beauty of the big book. Underneath the words, underneath the words, underneath the words, way underneath the words, the dynamic is absolutely the same and your observation about spirit is perfect. Thank you very much. That was a wonderful suggestion. Thank you. Begin again. And we'll be taking a look at steps eight and nine in this third stage of the rocket launch. That first stage is a relationship with power. The second stage is a relationship with ourself. The third stage is a relationship with other people. We've been in bondage in our relationships with other people. And the question is, how free do you want to be? Steps eight and nine are the biggest challenge. Am I willing to make amends? Am I willing to change? Am I willing to repair the damage? These are the questions. Well, what is harm? That's a major confrontation, that word harm. I needed to get around it. I needed to use a different word. It was so big a word that I, I, I couldn't actually even think about it for whatever reason. So I, I got a, a different word, it helped me. How did I diminish them? Diminish the quality of their life. The 12 and 12 has a, a wonderful uh, explanation commentary on steps eight and nine. And they uses the category of physical harm, mental harm, emotional harm, spiritual harm. I added financial harm because that's a very practical one. How did I diminish the quality of their life in those areas? Lots of people, when I'm asking them about the harm done, they talk about what I did. You know, and it's a good start. I recommend people have a three by five card when they're doing their list of harms. 
one card per person or one card per institution so that they can write on it uh, whatever they need to write on for a roadmap direction. That's what I see the eight step is. It's like a roadmap giving us direction it, with some specificity. Who did I harm? What did I do? Those are really good questions that you put on there. But the what I did is not the harm. I'm, and, and I'm going to repeat it several times because you're not hearing me. If I asked you what, what harm did you do, you would then begin telling me what you did. And that's not an answer to the question. What you did is an ingredient in an answer to the question. But what you did is what created the harm. How was what you did received by them? How, what is it that you did that had a negative impact on their quality of life? You see the difference. What I did is I kicked the dog. What harm did I do is the dog was hurt. The dog became afraid of human beings. The dog had a broken leg. That's the harm that's caused, not what I did. That's not the harm. But the negative impact of my behavior on other people or institutions. And so I have people fill out the card with those three pieces of information. Just those three. And when they finish their cards, maybe they have 10 cards, maybe they have 100 cards. It doesn't make any difference. They get that list from their fourth column of their resentment inventory, if you follow the worksheet that I do. But Bill says we, do, we get some of those names out of our step four work. Many people think that because I have a resentment, I harmed people. But given the precision of my first three questions, you can see that that's not so. You can have a resentment for somebody without harming, and you can harm people without a resentment. I was a thief. I stole things. I had no resentments. I had no fears. I had no sex. I had no shame or guilt in any of that, which all went into my fourth step. So I had to add is part of the conclusion to my fourth step, where was I dishonest? I cheated on my expense account. That had nothing to do with any of those other emotions. What harm did I cause my company is I deprived them of the income that they would have otherwise had. So I had to come up with the harm, what harm did I cause Specifically, it was a six-figure number over a 20-year period. It worked out very well. I'll tell you the story when we get to the ninth step. But it's about specificity. Once they finish their cards on the first three questions, then I ask them to write out what the specific action is necessary to correct the harm. Amend has two connotations. Amend my behavior, change my behavior. That's the one connotation. The other is amend the harm done, meaning repair the damage. 
it would be silly for me to go to my wife to address infidelity if in fact I wasn't prepared to stop infidelity. I needed to change before I could make an effective amend. I addressed that in our steps six and seven discussion. You notice, I hope you heard at least my protocol as I help other people, I have them do the first three and finish the cards on everybody in all institutions on those first three items. Then I give them that next question because I don't want them to modify number three by the anticipation of number four. We're wily and we will cut ourselves a lot of slack if in fact we think we're going to be embarrassed or disadvantaged. And the whole point of the step process one through nine is to be disadvantaged and embarrassed. I wonder what deflation of the ego at depth means. Listen to Bill Wilson in his own words in his story in the big book, page 14. At the top, simple but not easy. A price has to be paid. It means the destruction of self-centeredness. Hello, that's not a walk in the park. It means the destruction of self-centeredness. The next sentence, though, recaps the process of turning. We must turn in all things to the Father of light who presides over us all. Today, if we were writing it, we would probably just write, turn to the light. He's referring to the aspect of creator there, the creator of the universe. There's no gender there. And the final question that I ask people to put on the card is, are you willing? And some are quite willing to take care of the little stuff or the medium stuff. And most people are willing to even to do the hard stuff. But there are a percentage of people that have a percentage of damage that they say, hell no. I'll never, I'll go to my grave without ever addressing that. Those sons of bitches harmed me more than I ever harmed them and they can burn in hell. I, I'm, I'm quoting actually. So I have them graded. Willingness. Willingness one, totally. Willingness two, somewhat. I'll be prepared at some time. Willingness three, never. And that's why I recommend that people begin with the simple ones. Learn how to do it, get the protocol, get the movements, get the feelings, learn the language, be aware of the experience of doing the simple ones. And as you get a practice of doing it with the simple ones, you will have more willingness to do the moderate ones. And as you practice in doing the moderate ones, it's inevitable and it's 100% my experience everybody finishes their amends, even the hell no amends. They will grow through prayer and practice, through prayer and practice, to a willingness to be able to do that. But it's an area that needs outside counsel many times. The man who took me through the steps 
said in one preparation, I have no experience with that kind of situation with a woman. Why don't you go talk to a woman in the program that you trust and have confidence in that she knows and has experience with the amends process and ask her if this, what you're talking about, had been done to her 30 years ago, would she even want it addressed? And if she would want it addressed, how would she want it addressed? And I did that. And the woman did say she would want it to be acknowledged and addressed. And this was her recommendation, which I followed. Going into the nine-step commentary, which it's hard to not do a nine-step commentary when we're talking about the eight-step because it gives it some traction. It gives us some specificity, some reality. That's why Bill on page 76 combines them actually for the first time and last time. He combines two steps in one, steps eight and nine, I believe. But they're very different steps. Step eight is an inventory of the harms. And step nine is the plan of action and the action that we take to repair the damage. Uh, I called this woman of 30 years I hadn't talked to, and she was happy to hear from me. And we had a conversation in which I acknowledged our history. And at the end, she said, I'm so glad that you called. It is so freeing. I feel healed. I had not used that term. And yet that was her experience. She was able to spontaneously bring that term up in the conversation. You see, this is the process of forgiveness. If you look a word up in the dictionary, look at my hand. Forgiveness says in my journey is a decision to release them. That's all. A decision to release them. It starts in step four. When we own our role and responsibility, it ends in step nine when we repair the damage and we change our lives to reflect that reparation. The prayer of St. Francis captures it. It says, we are forgiven to the extent that we forgive others. It's paradoxical. The Lord's Prayer says the same thing. To the extent that we forgive them of their debts, our debts are forgiven. There's a book that I highly recommend, Forgive for Good, by Fred Luskin, L-U-S-K-I-N. He's a PhD clinical psychologist at Stanford. He did his doctoral dissertation 30 years ago on forgiveness. He converted that book into a book for us lay people who don't have that kind of educational background, forgive for good. And I read it in preparation to do a panel with him. I was asked to do a panel on forgiveness from the perspective of spiritual process as well as the 12-step process. And he was asked from the psychological standpoint, there's nothing in his book about spirituality, certainly nothing about 12-step. He wasn't even familiar with the 12-step process until he met me and we talked about it. But after the panel was done, and it was successful by our standards anyway, um, we were talking and I said, Fred, your, 
your book is outstanding. It captures from a psychological human development standpoint, the exact dynamic and process of forgiveness that I've experienced in doing it from a 12 step and spiritual standpoint. Uh, the dynamic is the same. The process is identical. The words are different to reflect the different cultures, but the underlying process is absolutely the same. And in all humility, Fred said, it was wonderful. Yeah, but you 12-step people and, and spiritual people have a real advantage. And I said, what's that? He said, you have God. I can't bring God as a scientist into my work, but it's the X plus factor that gives your process an awful lot more potency to make it effective. I was pretty impressed with that. The most important book I've ever read in my life because it's effective and it's simple is the big book. I'm, I'm serious. I have a graduate education in philosophy. I have a graduate education in theology. I have a graduate education in psychology, three different areas and branches and efforts at learning and development. I've read some really powerful, wonderful books on human development. The big book is the number one book for me because it's so powerful and simple. It changes my life, it changes anybody who finishes the first nine steps. This, the point of all of that buildup is the second best book I've ever read is Fred Luskin's book, Forgive for Good, because equally simple, equally confirming, equally doable, equally freeing in terms of human development. So let's talk about the ninth step. Bill has a wonderful set of words on page 76 with regard to both eight and nine. And it's uh, toward the end of the third full paragraph and it's in italics. Remember it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. He's referring there to alcohol. He's referring there to addiction. He's referring there to the first step and the first half of the first step. It's in italics. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning. Well, when did we agree to that? If we look at page 58, <clears throat> the words are exactly the same. If you have decided you want what we have, and are willing to go to any length to get it. That's the prelude to the third step. Chapter five, how it works, second paragraph. If you have decided you want what we have, a spiritual awakening, a change in the way we think and feel and behave. If you want what we have, freedom from addiction and freedom from reality in the sense of managing our lives. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, well, what does it mean to go to any length, dash? Then you are ready to take certain steps. See, that's the commitment in step three is to do steps four through nine. This is the beginning, Bill says, when he talks about step three. And here on page 76, he says, for victory over alcohol, it's in italics. And on 79, he uses identical words. 
reminding ourselves that in the first first full paragraph, reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any length to find a spiritual experience. You see the second half of the first step, unmanageability, the antidote to unmanageability is a relationship with power. To find a spiritual experience, we ask again a code in the big book for prayer anytime we're talking to God. Prayer is not words, prayer is intention. As human beings, we put them into words, sometimes formal words, most times informal words, sometimes with no words at all, but just this yearning supplication in all humility. We ask that we be given strength and direction. Again, the internal integrity of the big book. Look at step 11, praying for the knowledge of God's will connected to our mind. We need to know better. Praying for the ability to do it. Praying for the knowledge of God's will for us and the power to do it. We can know better. We just can't do better on our own. And even knowing better on our own is not necessarily our our ability. We be given strength and direction, guidance and power to do the right thing, no matter what the personal consequences. That's really the key. I've never seen anybody hurt by doing the ninth step when they followed the direction of the big book and the direction of an experienced person. I've seen lots of people hurt by doing an amends amends in the ninth step prematurely without information, without correct information, and without experience. Bill has lots of examples in the pages 76 to 83, but obviously he can't address all of the issues that face us as an individual, but he establishes principles. One of the principles is about our priorities. It's not about us. It's not about our being comfortable. It's not about our healing. It's not about our freedom. Page 77. At the moment, we are trying to put our lives in order. Yes, absolutely. But that's secondary. This is not an end in itself, he says on page 77. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Again, the internal integrity, the turning that is the end game Steps 11 and 12, our relationship with God in step 11 for guidance and power. Our relationship with humanity, the community of humanity in step 12. Living our lives on principles 24-7 helping. Not necessarily sponsorship, not necessarily step guide, not necessarily even in the program. But helping. In the pre-publication manuscript to the big book, step 12 read differently in the manuscript. Step 12 read, having had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps, we tried to carry the message to others, especially alcoholics. The manuscript reveals the spirit of the original people, the community, the collective wisdom that was writing the big book. Bill was the primary author, 
but there were a cadre of people in three different cities that were looking at the drafts and offering their suggestions. We tried to carry this message to others, especially alcoholics. That's why he could say in that first paragraph in the preface to the first edition, our way of living may have its advantages for all because that was his intuition. That was his prophetic vision that these 12 steps could change the world actually. And so our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God, step 11, and the people about us, step 12. He has particularly good advice on pages 81 and 82 with regard to infidelity. If she doesn't know, this is the classic male alcoholic, female at home. If she doesn't know, should we tell her? His answer is essentially no. We're not to harm another person with our, we're not to get free at another person's expense. Number two, if she knows in a general way, tell her in a general way, but don't get any details. Number three, if she knows everything, should we tell her everything? Well, maybe. We can't appraise an intimate situation. It may be that both will decide that the way of good sense and loving kindness is to let bygones be bygones. Each might pray about it, having the other one's happiness uppermost in mind. My wife knew in a general way. I talked to her in a general way. She didn't like that. She wanted to know the details, just like the book suggests. I said the book and my step guide sponsor has suggested this, and this is what I'm going to do. But she was, she was, she died three years ago. Uh, we were 52 years married at that time that she died, but we were 25 years married talking about divorce at this time in 1988, 89. And, um, I said, he has suggested, and this is his experience, that we pray together. Because I don't know whether to stay or to go. And she said, I don't know whether to stay or to go. Uh, our, our, she said, our, our family values are the same. Our histories are very parallel. We're both in a spiritual program, but I don't know whether to stay or to go. Yes, I will pray with you. And I suggested then the protocol that this man had experienced himself, you notice, from personal experience. And he said, we get on our knees and we hold hands and we look in each other's eyes and we pray out loud. One morning you pray, he said to me, out loud for guidance and healing. And the next morning, ask her to pray out loud for guidance and healing. Keep it short, keep it spontaneous, no editorial comments, no long prayers, no passive-aggressive innuendo at all in the prayer, no retaliation, pray for guidance and healing. She was willing to do that. I'll tell you, it's the most intimate relationship I had with my wife. Intimidating. I was, I was terrified 
but I did it. I got on my knees and she did, and we held hands. And I looked her straight in the eye and verbally a spontaneous prayer for guidance and healing. The next day we repeated that, but she prayed out loud for guidance and healing. After a week of doing that, we ha were having a conversation about it and realized that the heat had gone down between us and that we were more amenable to reconciliation. After about three months of doing it on a daily basis, on her own, she decided to take some outside resources, take advantage of some outside resources in terms of therapy concerning her family of origin issues, which it was her idea. And she was in that process for a while. And we continued this practice for three years. I asked, when will you ever trust me again? She said, Herb, trust is never given, it's earned. And I said, well, how do you earn it? And she said, with consistent behavior. I mean, she's a hard ass, Irish Catholic from Chicago, with consistent behavior. We didn't talk about it for another five years, but sometime we were maybe in the kitchen, maybe preparing a meal together. And she said, oh, by the way, Herb, I trust you now. Five years later of consistent behavior. Miracles, anybody who has done the fifth step will have experienced miracles. My protocol for doing a fifth step is to describe the harm done, to ask, is there any other harm that I haven't mentioned and or that you would like to talk about? Please hear those words. We're not there to force them to do anything, but we are there for them to get clean, to get whole, to get empty in terms of any of the tension or disturbance in them concerning our behavior. I describe why I'm there and I describe my perception of what I've done to harm them. Short, very succinct, not long drama descriptions. If I have to, I dress rehearse that with a step guide or sponsor beforehand so that I get very clear to be concise and succinct. And then I ask, is there anything that you would like to talk about in the ways that I have harmed you or diminished uh, your quality of life? And then I suggest the amends. I borrowed uh, $5,000, this is fictitious, and I'm here to either pay the money back or to arrange the best deal I can, says the big book. $25 a week or $25 a month or I'll be back to you when, in fact, I get a job and we can talk about realistic amends. I suggest the amends. I don't tell them what I'm going to do. And then I ask them, is, is that meet the standards of reparation from your standpoint? And is there anything else that I can do to balance the scale of justice? I hold that image in my mind as I'm sitting in front of this person or I'm on the telephone with this person or I'm writing them a letter. How do you make amends to a dead person? This man recommended I go to a cemetery, any cemetery. My father was cremated 12 years earlier than this process, he had died. I had a raging resentment toward my father, an alcoholic, 
verbal and emotional abuse, no physical violence, but a horrible place. Probably the reason I left at 17 to go into a monastery of silence. I needed a place to escape to. I'm confident that was part of the unconscious motivation. And he said, go to a cemetery and sit on a hill and write out your amends in this process there with this four part dance, write it out there and then read it out loud, asking his spirit to be present while you're doing that writing and that reading. It was so freeing, it was so emotional, it was so powerful. And I walked out of that cemetery free. I walked out of the cemetery free of a volcanic rage that I'd had all my life. Therapy had never touched it. The step work and, and the, my sponsor relationship had never touched it. But this process of forgiveness, of opening my closed fist and making a decision to release it, released him and released me as part of the answer to that last question. Is there anything else that I can do? Which I, I, I read out loud that question and I heard a voice in my heart take care of your mother. Well, my mother had disappeared due to a financial disagreement that we had, large amount of money. And um, she had sold everything and moved out of state with no forwarding address. So I didn't know how to reach her. But I knew that she got a retirement check from the Teamsters and because of the business I was in, I had relationships with the leadership of the Teamsters in our area. And I said, I know you send my mother a check. I'm not asking where she is, but here's a letter I would like you to send with her next retirement check. And in that letter, I had said, if there's anything I can do to make it right, let me know after acknowledging our history and taking responsibility for all of the hurt that I had caused. In that letter, I put several pictures of the children. <clears throat> she was the grandmother, model grandmother, loved the children, but had been disappeared for six years. So I put the current pictures of the children in the envelope just to touch her heart, really. And in two weeks, the envelope came back and it had been opened and it had been read but she was still so angry. She returned the pictures of the children. Yeah. But two years later, I got a call because she remembered the last line in that letter. She said, that letter that you sent me said, if I needed help, you would be there for me. Is it still offered? And I said, absolutely. By the way, hi, mom. <laughs> and, uh, I went to pick her up because she was completely destitute. She said she had terminal cancer and was wanted to come home and die. And uh, we brought her into the home and we nursed her through her suffering until she died. And she was healed in our family. She was healed in all her relationships and we were healed. How do you get here from there with a wife you've betrayed, with a father that's dead, with a mother who you can't find? How do you get here from there with the healing and the freedom? 
through a spiritual process. I cannot get here from there, but here I am. This forgiveness is a decision to release them and to be released. In my meditation, I came up with a, writing a meditation on forgiveness, which is in my way of life document. I'll be sending out one of the meditations on forgiveness over the next several months. But I was thinking about this last year. A forgiving person has no past, but an unforgiving person has no future. Because to the extent that we're locked into it, we're mired in the bedevilments. One of my good friends, Dan Sherman, compared the bedevilments with the promises at the end of the ninth step. Bedevilment, we were having trouble with personal relations. Promise, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellow. Self-seeking will slip away. Bedevilment, we couldn't control our emotional nature. Promise, we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Bedevilment, we were prey to misery and depression. Bedevilment, a promise, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Bedevilment, we couldn't make a living. Promise, fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Bedevilment, we had a feeling of uselessness. Promise. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Bedevilment. We were full of fear. Promise. We will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. Bedevilment. We were unhappy. Promise. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Bedevilment. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Promise. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. It's a phenomenal contrast. I hope Bill was conscious of it when he wrote page 52 and the promises on page 83. And most of all, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Freedom. Freedom has an interpretation, though, if you take a look at that. This person here is free objectively, but not subjectively, because Herbie is still holding the bars in front of his face. Step six and seven are illustrated in a book called Drop the Rock from Hazleton. Herbie has to drop the bars, you see, for full freedom. There's no ceiling, there's no walls, there's no floor in the jail that this person finds himself in. But as long as he's holding his head looking between the bars, he's still in this subjective jail. The big book says at step 10, we enter the world of the spirit and we have recovered. The words in the big book, page 84, were placed in a position of neutrality. We have physical sobriety. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. But similarly, on page 85, he said, we're not cured. We have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Ask yourself, do you have a sense of well-being? Right now, do you have a sense of contentment? 
This is especially relevant if you're free of your addiction for a day or a week or a month or a decade. Is your life now one of contentment and well-being? Well, if it's not, it's probably because you're not faithful to and have incorporated steps 10, 11, and 12 in your life, clearing the channel in step 10 on a daily basis, filling the channel in step 11 on a daily basis, emptying the channel in step 12 on a daily basis. This is our way of life. Bill calls it our way of living. Our way of living. A daily practice. The first nine steps are the program of recovery. The next three steps, 10, 11, and 12, are the program of living. There's a lot of moving parts in the program. Meetings, certainly, and we'll get back to physical meetings regularly, I'm sure, over time. The big book is the textbook, the instruction manual. The 12 steps are the precise process that's in the big book. It's not in any other literature. I've read the literature from most of the 12-step fellowships, not all of them. Wonderful stories, wonderful experience, wonderful commentaries. Very, very, very few instructions that are precise as to how to work the steps. We need to pray because we're powerless and we need to be of service because we're human. But the most important ingredient is yet to come here on this slide sponsorship because i believe if we have a sponsor an active relationship with an experienced person as i mentioned before we'll do all the other moving parts i i've come i thought originally meetings were the key meeting makers make it and then i did the steps out of the big book and i thought oh i became evangelistic if you haven't done the steps out of the big book precisely as i have your program's no good. Oh, I was so arrogant. But you know, if the spiritual experience and awakening is authentic, the spirit's breath and wind and will come in and round off the edges, which is what happened. And I saw the arrogance and grandiosity and the lack of helpfulness of that attitude. And it was only within, oh, probably 15 years ago that I realized sponsorship was the key when I saw other people who had a similar experience of mine either relapse or have lives that were just filled with turmoil. And each one of them had said that they were their own sponsor. Once they had a relationship with God, they thought God was their sponsor. Well, God doesn't talk back to you in the way that I need to be talked to. I need an accountability partner that's flesh and blood that can address my grandiosity. I've got lots more to talk about there, but I'm not going to for right now. If you have questions or concerns or comments or experiences, especially connected to steps eight and nine, you're welcome to raise them here. And as I said, I'm going to continue uh, with our dialogue here and recording it um, until, in fact, your questions have been addressed and or we reach two o'clock, which, whichever comes earlier. Um, just an FYI, my forgiveness workshop, similarly a three hour workshop was on December 5th. It's on YouTube. 
and um, the deep dive workshops on uh, steps 10, 11, and 12, respectively, are on September 12th, October 24th, and November 7th, specifically a, a workshop on sponsorship. And then a total overview of 10, 11, and 12 on January 9th, titled Our Way of Life. So as I say, each one of those areas deserves a lot more attention than I've given it in terms of reference today. And there's also a deep dive into each of the individual steps that I'm in process of unpacking for this year called Pathways to Freedom. So I'm doing a step a month and that's being recorded and edited and placed on YouTube also starting in January with step one, of course, February with step two, March with step three, April, the first half of step four resentment, May the second half, and like that through the balance of the year so that there'll be a much deeper discussion of each of those steps than has been offered up till now. You put so much out there for us. It's a lot. I'm, I'm not sure. Who, <laughs> I'm not sure whoever uh, uh, convinced me this was a simple program, but. <laughs> well, it's simple, but not easy. Simple, but not easy. Right. But you, you open up a lot of things. Um, it just on sponsorship. Uh, Cause I've had kind of a difficult time and, I don't think I'm shopping sponsors, as someone has accused me of before. I just seem to find it difficult to get the 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 uh, the degree of depth in the relationship. Um, and I have a sponsor. I have some people I also talk to that you know are are willing and able to to help. Um, but is it a process of you know just just keep looking, keep talking to people, or is it something I'm 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 afraid of? And and I don't, I don't know. You're welcome to email me. We can have a discussion about that. But the okay. simple answer from my standpoint is: this year I formalized a, a very informal process previously on a step guide. That is a train the trainer effort. And so um, the first Monday of every month at 11 o'clock California time, PST, uh, 11 o'clock, we have an hour and a half discussion with people who are interested being step guides or sponsors. And, and we're also creating a up-to-date and current list of people who are volunteering to be sponsors and step guides with information concerning time zones as well as fellowship. So that's all going to, it's in development. That's, but we've started the call last month and we've had the call this month and we're going to next month obviously have the call again. So you'd be welcome to join in and listen to what's going on from that standpoint. And then there will be a list probably before the end of this month that'll be distributed to the general database. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I recommend always praying for the spirit to bring into my life somebody who is meant to be my mentor teacher guide and using the set aside prayer 
I, I really make a combination now of prayer, specifically with the set-aside prayer, specifically with the intention over a 30 to 90-day period of being exposed to somebody I will resonate with. That's the word I use, because that was my experience with my step guide. It wasn't that I listened to his words and they were deep wisdom, and they were. I needed that. But there was something here in terms of a magnetic force that pointed north. And I'd never had that experience before. Now, it may not be that dramatic, but it's, it's really important that you resonate with the person, not just with what they're saying, but who they are. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And, and again, I'm coming away with that's something you feel that, that you know to yourself is vital throughout your 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 life through your I progress. I could not have done the step work without a step guide. I could not have navigated as with dignity the early twelve step fellowship without a sponsor. I'm making a distinction. Okay. A sponsor was a person who helped me navigate the 12-step program and even my life in terms of finances and relationships. Not that they were giving me direction, but they shared their experience of success. Mm -hmm. And they held me accountable to a standard of objectivity rather than my subjective story and whining. <laughs> but the step guide was the person who had, as a mechanic, an understanding of the specifics as to the application of the steps and that's my consistent experience. I've had four step guides over 20 years that have taken me steps one through 12, each time with a different experience, each time. Because, of course, their processing of the 12 steps was slightly different. Not dramatically, but I would say 10 or 15% different than the other people. And that difference was what was formative for me. And now I'm, I'm giving out the amalgam of all of that to the people in the workshops that I do. Do, do you feel you still need to do those, those steps with a guy? I, I have not done the steps formally one through 12 since 2003. Okay. And so the answer is no, I don't. Because I'm very rigorous and consistent and faithful to steps 10, 11, and 12. Right. Thank you very much. Oh, great question. Uh, the main reason that I came is that I am um, in step eight in a step study workshop. And I'm having trouble sometimes identifying the exact harm. It's not, not a concrete harm like a financial harm. Right. But an example of this was, and I'm, I'm also coming from ACA, where I have a long history of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You hurt me, I'm going to disappear. And mm -hmm. I have no way of really knowing how my abandoning a relationship harmed you, if it harmed you. Yep. So um, how do I determine that? Um, certainly in prayer, certainly with counsel from sponsors, step guides, or experienced people. But if it's a substantial relationship that you had or have or want to have all right mm. in the past in the present or in the future if it's substantial and you really don't know you ask 
Tom, I've known you for 20 years. You know that I'm in recovery and periodically I do an inventory to see and evaluate my relationships. I know that I've been a jerk with you. I'm not sure what the impact was, but I would like to know if you want to talk to me about some of that, because I don't want to be a jerk. I want to be a decent person and I want us to have a, a good relationship. Is there anything that you would like to talk about? It seems so simple to hear you say, just ask. When in doubt, just ask. If I have any interest in, you know, in, uh, in repairing it. I'll give you another example. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I had a, a buddy group meeting and we discussed this this morning and we didn't have any consensus about whether it was harm or whether it wasn't harm. For a number of years, I took my garbage to an apartment complex or to Safeway and used a public dumpster. Yes. Had nothing to do with my ability to have garbage service. It was about being a rule breaker and being a rebel. Mm -hmm. So there was some thinking and my idea was I needed to go to these four places and I, I needed to just say, I regret that I did this. But what's the I harm? Wait, 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 well, wait, wait, wait. What's the what's harm? The har the harm is that there might not have been enough space for someone who lived there to actually dump their garbage. If my garbage has taken up too much of the space, I don't know exactly what the harm is, Yeah, yeah. but I'm. Uh, my suspicion is there wasn't any harm in an objective sense, but you do have a regret for the inappropriateness of it. It, but it, I don't see it in the area that you need to inconvenience anybody else in terms okay. of making an amend. But in prayer, be creative about, so what can I do today, practically, to diminish somebody's um, inconvenience? I might have, I might have inconvenienced, I probably didn't. It wasn't inappropriate, and I, I don't do that anymore because I'm more conscious, but I'd like to symbolically take some action to actually relieve my own guilt. Mm -hmm. and, and so ask yourself, where in the world can you, in your, in your, in your universe, smooth out something that's inconvenient to somebody or some community? And just be open in prayer. Take 30 days, 60 days, and determine that. And, and, and come up with something that has some, for instance, when I can't find people or I shouldn't find people to make amends to. You know what I mean? Uh, it's not appropriate for whatever reason to reopen that wound or to visit that person. I determine a prayer practice. I'm going to pray three days for that person's wealth, welfare and well-being. I'm going to pray three weeks for that person's welfare or well-being. I'm going to pray three months for that person's welfare, depending on the severity of the harm that I created that I would love to repair. But in guidance from objective people, they say, yeah, you're just being a pest or you've got corrupt motives. All right. So 
nobody ever tells me what to do. They just raise questions about my motives in doing it. And then I, in prayer, I challenge myself. So what I'm saying is, maybe this isn't like a one, one and done <laughs> for you, but it might be something that you could establish a sequence of things where it's very specific for you. And when you're done, you're done. And if it ever came up where you were confronted with the reality of something that's relevant to it, you, you're prepared to be willing to take, it, to take actions that's called for. But meanwhile, you've taken some type of action on your part in conjunction with prayer that satisfies you. Yeah, what comes to mind immediately, uh, because Safeway was one of my favorite places, is helping people with their groceries uh, to the car. Very relevant know, to this. Yeah, yeah, just just doing some volunteer work there, and um, or going to the to the Safeway parking lot and steering yeah. the baskets back to where they're supposed to be rather exactly. than scattered throughout. So you're, you're bringing some convenience to Safeway, but be careful that you don't get into some kind of compulsion that's driven by guilt and shame and you become the basket lady for Safeway for the next 20 years. No, I, I don't think that I'm in danger of that, but I love the idea of time there limit. Are people, there are people on this call that would have misinterpreted what I said. <laughs> well, you caught me when you said, are you a compulsive uh, meeting attender? Yeah. Because I am absolutely, especially during the pandemic. All right. It's the highlight of every day. And I say, who am I harming? Nobody. I'm helping myself. But I could have been out two months ago after I had all the vaccinations. I have no desire to leave my home because I'm having so much fun on 12-step meetings. You know, and, and keep it in perspective, though, because right. there's nothing wrong with what you're doing on the surface of it. But it's different people, from living your life. I'm oh not living my. my life yet. So I know people who have lost their jobs over going to meetings or who have lost their relationships, marriages because of going to meetings. Oh, you put AA in front of your family because they did. Right. Right. It, thank you so much. I've loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Oh, it's wonderful. Thank you. You know, I understand the willingness and grace um, alchemy there. I've had many things happen in that space. And so, um, but I, I have this upbeat kind of personality where I feel very upbeat about myself because I believe <laughs> that I'm giving, loving, available, and trusting of humankind. Nice. However, okay, on the other side of it, I have really what it looks like more to others likely is that I am pulled down withholding, distracted, busy, and keep myself at arm's length. And so, but I keep myself upbeat thinking I'm the other way. <laughs> and there's this huge disconnect and it's, 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 I'm sure it's the core is from trauma. And the core part of that trauma is that this place is not safe. You know, I had a, a series of traumas early on in life and so it set up this, like, I feel I can put myself out there, but then I pull back because there's that core belief hitting again. You know, this isn't safe. This isn't safe. You know, other than that grace through willingness, 
and God does miracles. I get it, but it, it's, you know, I've been trudging this path for 20 years and I still find myself being pulled back by that old core belief that this place is not safe. And I just wanted to see what you had to, to lend to that. All right. So I understand the dilemma, I think, but what's the question? How do I get to the other side where I can actually be all those things? What, on every, you know. So what is it? What is it that you would like in an ideal world? Who would you like to be? Yeah, loving, giving, available, present. You know all those spiritual qualities that we right. admire and want to be. All right. All right. So now's the time to get really specific and look if you can find that uh, worksheet in the step six and seven area in the way of life document and uh, or just on a piece of paper define, yes, I want to be kind. All right. What prevents me from being kind? Okay. My uh, insecurity and a lack of safety with people. All right. What would it look like behaviorally if I was kind? What would I need to have to change? Well, mm, I would I fill in the blank, whatever that would mean. All right. What's maybe it would be courage would be the virtue. And so and then in your morning meditation, you think about this, you ask for guidance, and then you make a decision to practice today this virtue. It's, it's, it's what I do in the morning when I look back at yesterday. Okay, Herb, you were a bit impatient yesterday on the workshop. And oh, there's lots of reasons for it and excuses even and explanations even. But it's not what I want to be. I want to be patient. So today I'm going to be conscious of being patient, which means that I'm going to have to breathe, pause, mm -hmm. and not react. I'm going to have to breathe, pause, pray, and not react. All right? And have a measured response as I... And as my spiritual director said to me about 20 years ago, Herb, no fast moves. Because I'm, I'm a results-oriented person, a double-A kind of personality. And man, I'm quick. <laughs> yeah, so quick. I, heart, I, I harm all kinds of, you know, environmental stuff, including people. <laughs> so, so it's much better to be measured. And yeah. I practice that today because that was my character defect du jour yesterday. Right. All right. Because I end my morning practice, my morning meditation with this seven-step prayer. Listen to the last line of the seven-step prayer. Yeah. And I go out from here to do your bidding. Is that not perfect? Yeah. It's a great launching pad for the day. So I'm, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to be progress. And I'm going to be a better person today than I was yesterday. Because I'm conscious of where I misfired yesterday. And I use principles as guardrails or guide, guide rails. Yeah. Wonderful concept. Uh, I mean, I, I turned to 80 July 1st. So uh, I'm very conscious of guardrails. Right. 
guide rails, you know, uh, using the hands on the stairs is really important so I don't lose my balance. And I use principles the same way. Yeah. Principles are, I bump up against them only because I'm at cross purposes with reality. I'm, I'm much embedded, invested in my own ego and my own will and my willfulness when in fact I'm bumping up against the guardrails. Yeah, a lot of conversation here, but I, I hope some of that was helpful. That was very helpful. Thank you so much, Herb. Appreciate now, that. Again, a great question. How do I become a decent human? More, I mean, you are a decent human being. I mean, everybody on this call is because they wouldn't be here if they weren't. But we're we want to improve. Yeah. We want we want to improve. We know there's more light. Yeah. Yeah. Because it because it's an infinite light. Going back to that conversation concerning God that we had, I hope she's still here. But it's an infinite light. The dimmer switch has no end. It will continue going click, click, click up if we stay gently pressed up against it for the balance of our life. Right. Yeah. Right. All Thank right. you, Herb. Thank you. You give so a lot much. of gifts. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Wonderful. Earlier, much earlier. In the, in the meeting you were sharing about um, the fourth step experience. And I think uh, my question, I guess, is maybe to ask for clarity. And then if to if I heard you correctly, then maybe a uh, suggestion. But I had an experience where my, um, my fourth step after doing my fifth step, it, it was decided and my sponsor had come to a decision in prayer and after much thought and for the first time, Ever, she she had been moved to whoosh, destroy the the evidence she's never done that with a sponsee before um I don't know for sure but I suspect it's because of the like the the amount the quantity and just like the I don't know I had a feeling when I did my fourth step that like none of it like I started down to right and I felt like I didn't have any resentment or I didn't have anything that I you know but then I filled up like multiple binders and I had a whole suitcase I took to her house, but they were little teeny things. They didn't really bother me, you know? So I don't know, right? Maybe. What's your question? Well, my question is, I always felt like they were destroyed. And so I couldn't really do a proper like six step. And then I felt like I can now I haven't really properly done my whatever. Like, what do you I think your sponsor was very wise and uh -huh. saved and saved you from yourself? Wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you ask me and you know you're going to get at least something. And it might not be what you want. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Because my sense is that if the analysis that you just gave us, that it was small stuff that really was just a bunch of stuff, yeah. that it was picayune is the word, very small details that pebbles and sand that yeah. didn't really make much difference no. individually, but as a whole lot, it filled up a suitcase and it filled up your life. And she just relieved you of that burden. Yeah. Uh, yes. There, there it is. Cause it's, it's all just, they, well, Herb, they said, don't leave anything out. No, I know, but see, she treated your, she treated your, whether you wanted it treated or not, she treated your perfectionism by allowing you to start fresh from a memory of your character defects, because I'm confident 
that you can create the major demons in yourself pretty quickly within the next 30 minutes. Yeah. So you don't need that background of suitcases, right? Okay, you're not wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. My sponsor will be like tickled. Yeah. yeah. Now, well, you know, what a wonderful wisdom woman. And really also, is. say it again. She really is. And what a wonderful person you are, one, to follow direction, but two, to get validation or at least to get some ammunition to tell her that she was wrong. And <laughs> that didn't work. Yeah, son of a, son of, it usually doesn't, Herb. usually doesn't. I've been having a lot of fear about actually writing the list of defects, hmm. even though I had an exhaustive fifth step with my sponsor. I'm finding myself very anxious about putting down on paper all the things that I came to realize and then releasing that to HP. And I'm not sure why, but um, I just, I feel a little braver after today. Well, you're right. It comes at a great time for you to get kind of the full picture yes where it fits in, yes. that has to be very helpful. And I would suggest in prayer, doing a little journaling about that question that you just asked. I hope you heard it. Why am I afraid? Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm always afraid of everything all the time. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Yeah. All right. And I mean, I try not to be. I'm, and I'm braver than I used to be, but... Um, yeah. I have said in other other places and other ways, I'm addicted to fear. That's one of my addictions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah it's a habit. For it you. is a habit. Yeah. Like I, I think you talked about, um, you know, the thorn in the foot. Yeah. It's, yeah. If I get rid of this thorn, when's the next one going to come? Well, as you heard me talk in the sixth and seventh step also, there are three different, according to a person, one personality theory, of, in psychology, which is one, the one I follow called the Enneagram. Um, it's a Greek word that means nine personality types. There are three basics and three variations. Three times three is nine, um, just for other people. But um, yours, uh, the, the three types are anger, fear, and shame. Yeah. You're a fear-based person. Yeah. That's the lenses through which you look. You can't help it. That's who you are. That's how you're built. But now, are you going to allow yourself to be dominated by your structure? Or are you going to take advantage of this spiritual process and learn how to manage it so that it doesn't dominate you? Right. You regulate it. Notice I didn't say dominate. You regulate it. And that's what this is all about. Yes, yes I'm a fear-based person, you say. And, and I would say, I'm a shame-based person. And it used to dominate my life. I was a chameleon because I was so afraid of being recognized in the marketplace. So you want a green person? Turn on a green light. I'll put on a green suit. All right? But now I'm just who I am because I have a sense of safety. I have a sense of security. I have a sense of self-esteem from doing esteemable things mm. and learning who I am and who I am not. And that's what you're doing. You're learning who you are and who you are not and that you do have free will. All right. And you 
have a responsibility as an adult, as an emotionally and spiritually evolved person to learn how to and to practice managing this fear by acts contrary to my fear. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been a journey, I tell you. I I after 13 years of very what I thought was very deep spiritual work, I I was scratching the surface. There is something about the big book and and the way in which Yes. you unpack it over the, the year that is completely different and um so i'm just very grateful so thank you very much yeah yeah and um the prayer set aside and a little journaling to get underneath what this is the the big book is as i've said you've heard is very glib with regard to fear page 68 glib meaning too simplistic in a way it says you have fear and you have it because of self-reliance. And the answer is God-reliance. Well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's not, it, it is helpful in the big picture, but it's not helpful in the small picture. No, no. Right. Well, and it's an act. Fear, fear is, you know, the way to get through fear is with action, right? And the analogy, I, the analogy. Prayer, prayer and action. Prayer in action. And the analogy I always think of is that moment in um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where he's going for the chalice. It's across the ravine and he looks down into the abyss and he just puts his foot out and the, the, it appears. And so I keep, I keep thinking, all right, if I just put my foot out, the bridge will be there. But I'm still standing there kind of not quite believing the bridge is going to show up. Right, right. Anyway, but I'm better than I was, and that's the good yep. news. Fair, uh, objective guidance to make sure that, in fact, you're not fantasizing that there's a walkway yeah. there. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, then, and then taking the leap of faith. Yeah. That's what we talk about. Yep, a leap of faith. But it's about common sense. And that's where accountability and sponsorship and wisdom people really come in handy. Yes. Agreed. And you're one of them. So thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wonderful dialogue. All right. So how do you know if you're fear-based or shame-based? Or can you be both? Or can yeah. your shame yeah. be coming from fear or vice ah. versa? Yes. It, and and it, it can get kind of uh, challenging. The theory is that each human being has all three. Each human being has all three, of course. But what's your dominant one? The one that usually is dominant and it doesn't change. Yeah. Now it can modify, but you're still going to have this dominant one. And, and is it important? For me, it was important. It was important. And that's why I did about a three-year study on the Enneagram to kind of learn a little bit more about it. The Riso Hudson, that's a, a two different males that cooperated and wrote a book that I like as a primer um, to give the overview of how it works. Um, and it, it, it helped me. It helped me not only to understand myself. That was the key. Of course, I'm so self-centered. I wanted me, me first, please. Thank you. But, but it really helped me understand you and you and you 
that, oh, you're not inferior and you're not superior. You're just different. And it's organically, biologically, physiologically different. You can't help it. You're just different. That was life-changing for me in terms of my relationships. Right-sized thinking. Um, realistic, yes, yes. Real Dealing with reality as it is, not as this makeup story that I have in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say one more thing? Um, of course. So every time I come to your workshops and I read a new sentence, I see it in a different way. And I just uh, found one. It's in, on page 62, step one. In the past, we've made decisions based on the self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. <laughs> it's like, and you can really understand that once you've done a fourth step. Yeah. But you can't really understand the technicolor depth of that until you've done a fourth step. But and then, but the, the whole thing with the resent, resentments too, and making amends. I mean, right. we we have to do it from a spirit of really wanting to be, be of service and repairing harm that we did to others. That's but right. We have to do it because that's how we get healed. That's right. That yeah, underneath the underneath the underneath, the motive's still about me. Huh. Yeah. But well, that's but it's legitimate and it's healthy. Well, we want to be more productive. <laughs> I, I want to be a decent human being so that, in fact, I can live comfortably in this life. And, oh, by the way, parenthetically and paradoxically, that can only happen if I'm thinking more about you than I am about me. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, okay, then I'll think about you so that I'll be happy. <laughs> it's a little catchy, especially when you're dealing with a narcissist. <laughs>
rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. Bill Wilson said that this is the deflation of the ego at depth. Richard Rohr says this is the dying of the false self. The dying of the false self so the true self can emerge. Eckhart Tolle says in The Power of Now, the secret to life. You've heard me quote him before if you've been around me. The secret to life. What a great beginning. Pay attention. The secret to life is to die before you die and realize there is no death. That was the promise of the fifth step. Walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. On the road. On the road. The destiny is the de the destination is the journey. The journey is the destination. Thanks, everybody. Wonderful. We'll be, I'm sure, walking this path hand in hand again at some point. Bye-bye.